Bernard Wright Rusness and Peggy Joyce McKay were a 49-year-old and 41-year-old, respectively, from Wolf Lake, Minnesota. They had been together several years and had a son. On the night of April 3rd, 1976, locals noticed the Rusness McKay house on fire. Firefighters found the son dead inside. Yet Bernard and Peggy's remains were not there. They were never seen again. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. Fire is one of those topics that I could have never suspected would get mentioned so much on Unfound when I started this podcast over six years ago. I would put it in the same category as missing people who called for rides then weren't there when their friends or family arrived. We've had four of that type amazingly. You wouldn't think it would be a thing. With fire, we've had at least seven disappearances where it has played a role. Once again, surprisingly. Can you name those seven without peeking? I'll give you a moment. They are in no particular order. Dorianne Myers, Jeremy Burt, Laura Bible, and Ashley Freeman, Tyler North, Christian Balky thompson and Ronald McNutt, although fire didn't play a role until long after he went missing. For the six, not including Ronald's, there's no doubt that foul play was the cause in all of them. Thus, what makes sense is when fire is an element of a case, it most likely points to a non-accidental reason for the disappearance. Well, with Bernard Rusness, and Peggy McKay, we have a very unique case. But it's that kind that can test our thinking the best. Where should our analysis start when the smoke clears? And now a summary of the case. This is brought to you by my friend Megan Lyonez's website, charlieproject.org. Bernard Rusness and Peggy McKay were not married, despite everybody around them believing so. They had been together for almost 10 years and had an 8-year-old son, Brian. Each had prior marriages and children from those relationships. Yet there's nothing on the record that shows this was a problem for anyone. They lived on Peggy's brother's farm. They both had jobs in the automotive industry and had reputations as being very private quiet people. The only shady point about them that can even be substantiated is that Peggy might have fixed a bidding process for a truck at the car salvage place where she worked. However, this only amounted to a couple hundred dollars overall. So, on the night of April 3rd, 1976, 
Passersby noticed flames coming from the basement, then the second floor of Bernard and Peggy's house. Firefighters arrived and put out the flames. The home was a total loss. During a search of the debris, authorities found the partial remains of Brian and the bones of one of the family's dogs. However, Peggy and Bernard were not found, neither outside nor inside the house. They were never seen again. To complicate matters, Bernard, known as being a very protective guy, had left the hood up on his truck in the driveway and the keys in the lock of a shed near the house. These facts, among others, have caused rumors of foul play to swirl over the past 46 years, involving Bernard and Peggy as either victims or suspects. As stated in the opening, fire is a topic on Unfound, coming up on average one in 40 episodes. When it does, we almost always believe the fire was started so as to cover up evidence that would lead investigators to the perpetrators of the disappearances. Please keep that in mind as you try to answer these three questions during the interview. Number one, why would a killer or killers leave Brian behind but take Bernard and Peggy? Number two, why hasn't a cause of the blaze ever been made public? In fact, why did it not seem to be a concern at the time in 1976? And number three. Could Bernard and Peggy have died by accident in the fire and their bodies turned to ash? The science of which I will explain after the interview so you can decide for yourself. The families of both Peggy and Bernard tend to believe foul play occurred, but they can only offer rumors as proof. The guest for this episode is Amateur Sleuth and expert on these disappearances, Joe Kistner. Unfound News The Unfound Live Show is now available as a podcast on your app. Please find this new show and subscribe. I would greatly appreciate it. You will hear me detail and analyze some of the biggest national and international true crime stories that have made news over the past week. Next, the past few days found me speaking at Florida Southern College in Lakeland and at Nova Southeastern University in Davie. Spectacular engagements, if I may say so myself. Both of them were videoed and are now available on YouTube for members. They're on Patreon as well. Finally, yes, I got the call, and many of you were correct. It seems I will be heading back to Greeley, Colorado for the retrial of Steve Pankey. When? Not sure yet. Probably late October. I'll let you know. Where you can find Unfound. On these following podcast platforms. Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and many others, especially outside the United States. 
The new podcast, Unfound Live, which comes out on Tuesdays, can also be found on these platforms. Social media sites, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the newest one, TikTok. Listener support sites, patreon.com forward slash unfound podcast, paypal.me forward slash unfound podcast. The website, theunfoundpodcast.com. The email address, unfoundpodcast at gmail.com. And please mention Unfound at all true crime websites and forums. Thank you. I'm so happy again to introduce to all of you Joe Kistner. Of course, he was on the Milton McQuillan episode from about a month ago. Well, he is back to talk about the disappearances of Bernard and Peggy. Joe, welcome back to Unfound. Thanks, Ed. I appreciate the opportunity again to uh, very, join us. You're very welcome. Uh, we went over your uh, credentials uh, for, uh, during McQu- uh, Milda's episode, but it was kind of right in the middle. But we're going to do that again right now. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, uh, what you're, you've done, what you're doing in your life, and then we will eventually get around to how these disappearances caught your eye. But just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself to start. Um, by a trader, by career, I'm a light rail supervisor from Metro Transit in Minneapolis. I live about an hour west, southwest of Minneapolis. Um, I've kind of been doing... Uh, Things like this have always held my interest. Uh, I started a web page with my daughter, a Facebook page years ago, uh, looking at strange and unusual places and events and people in Minnesota and uh, kind of things that we could go see within a tank of gas. Um, From uh, there, we uh, kind of moved on. I was turned on to a case of a... uh, strange double murder suicide back in 2000 by a co-worker who actually investigated it and that's kind of where i started delving into the police record issues um what i had hoped to do with our little project um is eventually make uh publish like a travel log through minnesota where people as they're driving through could go visit different places or as they're driving through note uh, find notable things that are unusual mm-hmm. things that that area yeah and i uh thought about okay what would you do for a follow-up after that because you know i've always got to work a little bit ahead and that's my little add in me Mm -hmm. and i thought maybe a book on unsolved crimes or or missing persons in the in uh, minnesota might be interesting to look into Mm -hmm. and uh that's where i kind of started on this foot and needless to say uh the other book is still unpublished, and now I find most of my time occupied doing doing uh, things like Milda's case and what we're going to talk about, the the Bernard, Bernard Rustness and Peggy McKay disappearance. Mm-hmm. So at any point in your life, uh, of course, I think we're close to you know the same age, maybe kind of Generation X or somewhere in there. Uh, at any time in your life, like in your 20s, did you ever think about going into law enforcement or becoming an investigator, anything like that? Or is that just something that popped up later in, in your life? 
Well, I think that's always been one of those things. I've always wanted to be, as a kid, you know, a newspaper man or a private eye would have been kind of okay. fun. I've always yeah. been interested in the strange and unusual and in unsolved things. Mm -hmm. In the past, I've worked for uh, a couple of different sheriff's departments as corrections and uh, dispatch. I've done fire uh, in EMS. I've been an EMT for, to the EMT for 12 years. Wow. I was on a fire department for around five to six years. Um, then I served as a local police commissioner for five years. Wow. In the past. So I've kind of got a little, not direct investigative experience mm -hmm. in the field, but I've got a good feel for what uh, law enforcement does and how they operate and with using that okay. background. All right. And are you like me? Of course, I've told these stories many times when people have asked, you know, going back maybe to the 1970s, like uh, In Search of, Unsolved Mysteries, Cops, were you uh, a fan of those kind of shows as well? Or did you, or is that something that you weren't aware of or didn't take an interest at the time? What you say? Well, I remember In Search of Saturday evenings at 6.30 on Channel 5 KSDP in Minneapolis. Uh, then I was Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack. Yeah. And then... Uh, the old Fox show sightings, which would go after some of the stranger, stranger aspects of the world. Right. Uh, were intriguing. And uh, even some of the uh, dramatized movies back there with a 1970s uh, made for television, uh, true event type stories and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's always intrigued me. It's one of those things where I've always been a daydreamer and <laughs> you kind of, you know, you kind of look after that, uh, uh, my ex-wife would call it a disability, but we're always looking for something that is a little bit uh, beyond the norm, mm. you know, to take away from the mundane of your of the daily life, yeah. those little mysteries. And it's something that's always worked to help keep my mind occupied, right. um, being able to sit down and, and uh, mull over these different things, over different uh, scenarios and things might have happened. And, and also, like, now I enjoy the research. I think I'm fairly good at it okay. and digging in to see what you can what paths paths you the paths you can go down and uh right. uncovering new information going down some different directions and stuff has always been yeah it's it's interesting to me because you know you some of the things that you just about your personalities you've mentioned working for the fire department emt police commissioner these are all very much group activities where you have to work you know, in a team, you know, fighting a fire or, you know, in an ambulance showing up somewhere, you know, you have to work together to save a person's life. But then you're doing this, which is, as I know, a very solitary activity. So it's a wide range of uh, behavior and, and choices you make uh, as far as work and, you know, how you spend your free time. Well, you know, it's when, uh, you know, working Monday through Friday type thing when you have your weekends, sometimes you just need to unwind. And that's usually how I end up unwinding. We can just get inside your own head and work things through. Um, it's always nice, though, to have a little collaboration. Uh, I've been collaborating a little bit with Eric. Um, yeah, from assistant. Um, yeah, sure. And uh, it's been really nice to be able to run things by each other mm -hmm. and just talk things through. That helps a lot, too, to, to go over some of these, these different things. And that's been a real blessing, too. So we talk about every two or three weeks and stuff for an hour or so and yeah good <laughs> i know you do eric has told me about that excellent let's move on to this uh this disappearance of course we're talking about today bernard rustness 
and Peggy McKay. We're going to use the last name McKay. We realized that in Namus and elsewhere that her maiden name, which is Parmenter, is used. But officially, at the time, uh, her, her last name was McKay. She and Bernard were never married. So for purposes of this interview, we're going to use the last name McKay, M-C-K-A-Y. When did you first hear about the these disappearances of course going this happened in the 1970s you're a young man i was a very young man um but when did you hear about them maybe as an adult uh was it well before you ever thought about looking into them or how did that all come about i wasn't that long before i was going through a list of uh um, open missing persons cases in minnesota i did see it on there and uh looking at the little snippets of the circumstances i thought it was quite interesting mm. um never looked at it much farther beyond that um i found a case that was close to home um a troy hallstrom that went missing in 2014 locally here and as i dug into that i had met a few people that went to high school with troy troy went to high school about 14 miles from where i actually grew up and uh got to know them and one of the uh the women that I had uh, been working with with the Troy stuff uh, introduced me to Lorelei and uh, mm -hmm. told me about Lorelei's uh, missing grandmother. Yeah, Milda, mm -hmm. sure. And uh, asked if I wouldn't mind looking into it because I like digging into that stuff. And then through Lorelei, uh, Bernard's granddaughter was associated with her because of the they they're both went dis, disappeared in the same county so her uh bernard's granddaughter got a hold of me and i started kind of working with their family and when i started doing uh, information requests i did basically both of them <clears throat> to the becker county sheriff's office for both both cases and when did that when did that happen this was about four years ago um it's kind of interesting because I know a lot of people wouldn't be watching and listening to this show if they didn't have some interest in it. And I learned a lot about doing records with requests and every state is a little bit different. Sure it is. Minnesota, yes. everything 30 years old is considered an open case. Hmm. And uh, that's how I presented it to the county attorney and the sheriff's office when I did the initial request. I uh, got a lot of kickback from the county attorney's office stating that it's an, still an open case, blah, blah, blah. Um, I went to the uh, state data practices office that specializes in information releases and stuff like that. And they weren't a lot of help. I ended up having to uh, do my own little litigation with the county attorney. Um, hmm. They kept saying it's an open case we can't release and i said it doesn't matter because it's 30 years old yeah and the whole homicide stuff was all conjecture essentially anyway so i got a lot of experience doing that but once the assistant county attorney finally gave up the sheriff's department was uh, very helpful on those files so so that's one thing i'd say is learn the uh data practices laws of the state you're working with and be a little relentless relent relentless so you got this started this all kind of started four years ago 2018 somewhere around there 
right around there, yes. Okay. Your impression, now that you, of course, are as well, you know, well-versed in this disappearance as anybody on the earth, uh, in the state of Minnesota, where you uh, still live, uh, would you say it's a very well-known disappearance? Of course, maybe a lot of people who don't live there, maybe the first disappearance they're going to think of in Minnesota maybe is Joshua Guimans, of course, is a disappearance you and I have talked out about behind the scenes. But overall impression of these two people's disappearances, well-known, not so well-known, where does it all fall in all of the disappearances that have happened in the state of Minnesota? I'd say Jacob Wetterling and uh, Josh Guimans mm. are probably two of the right cases a lot of people haven't heard of it um i guess nationally when you start looking at blogs and reddits and stuff like that there are right. threads that have popped up about it over the years mm -hmm. because it's a very very intriguing case but i yeah. think maybe at the time uh, there might have been a little more notoriety of it but i think it's been forgotten by a lot of people yeah uh, when yeah. i did speak with the bureau of criminal apprehension in many and uh, st paul uh, the investigator I talked to there said, oh, we still refer to it as the Wolf Lake case. Huh. So it seems to still be in the minds of, of people around that office. But yeah, it's kind of hit or miss. Like I said, I'd probably find more people out of the state that are aware of the case and more people than people in the state. Interesting. That's interesting. Uh, just off the top of your head, I would not, not expect you to know. Uh, but off the top of your head, your head, would you say there are a lot of disappearances in Minnesota? I mean, you've obviously looked at them and you decided on the particular ones. Milda's, these two disappearances. I mean, how many are there to pick from uh, off the top of your head? Do you even know? Um, it, it's kind of strange because I picked the, I looked through the uh, BCA uh, missing persons clearinghouse the other day. And some of the cases have moved in and out of there. Um, I swore at one time I looked in there that Milda and Bernard and Peggy were in there. And they've since rotated out. There's some cases that are still in there, some that aren't. Um, I think it's, you've got a lot that, you know, disappeared hunting. Um, a lot of them are, have, uh, circumstances like you've covered too where there might be some outside factors there might have been might have been addictions there might have been mental right. illness sure like that involved with it and not sure. to take away from those cases but um there aren't as many uh where they're just uh no logical reason or nothing you can deduct from right. you know there aren't as many of those around well, of I course, we have to remember Minnesota. Minnesota is not one of the more populous states. It's certainly not like Florida. Of course, th Florida is the third most populous. I would say Minnesota is probably in the bottom 20 or something like that. But, you know, maybe 100, miss 100 unsolved missing persons cases that are over like a year old, probably at least, right? There's oh, yeah. Like, probably twice that many here in Florida, at least. What we always got to look at, too, is what gets reported in those statistics sure. are are runaways, um, people that probably chose to kind of abandon their life. I don't think that's all that popular these days because it's a little more difficult to do. Uh, but I mean, when I worked with the sheriff's office, uh, we in the PD, we might've entered, you know, three or four a week. And then they'd yeah. be resolved, a, a runaway case or something like that gets put into the NCIC database, just like a missing persons, you know, you'll have a missing endangered, type scenario or a parental abduction scenario. 
So there's some different categories that goes into. So I'm not sure when they announce these numbers where they all fall into. If it's, uh, <clears throat> um, I, I think a lot of them are in those those scenarios where runaways, abduct, parental abductions, things like that. Okay. All right. Well, let's move on to the two people we'll be talking about uh, in this interview. Let's start with Bernard. Let's just talk about him in just very general terms about, um, you know, uh, his family, what he did for work. Uh, you know, what did, you know, what were some of the words that maybe people might use regarding him? Was he friendly? Was he not so friendly? I mean, what, what did people say about uh, Bernard? Once again, just in general terms, as a, as a human being, what, what can we say about Bernard? I think, I think the people that knew him earlier on, um, I think he was a uh, cordial guy in a, um, I know it seems like a lot of uh, people would uh, uh, do him from, they might go to the bar occasionally type thing. Mm -hmm. uh, he worked as a body shop technician, I think most of the time uh, prior to uh, being in Wolf Lake that lived in the Twin Cities uh, South Metro area. Um, it seems like he had a lot of associates yet from down in Minneapolis that uh, uh, it seemed like he was uh, knew a lot of people down there. Uh, up in Wolf Lake was a little bit different story. The few people that I know he might have associated with seemed to also be uh, kind of body shop guys as well. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, he had uh, he, so this was his uh, work that he was doing at the time of his disappearance. So he worked for uh, a big dealership in the area. Yeah, he worked for a Chevrolet dealership in uh, Fargo, mm -hmm. along with his uh, eldest son. Worked there, and Peggy had worked at a uh, place called Twin Cities Auto Self. It doesn't exist anymore. More of a, a salvage tow yard type thing. Okay. And Bernard, though, we have to remember Bernard and Peggy were an item at the time of their disappearance, but Bernard... Uh, did have uh, an ex-wife, or maybe he was still married to her. What do we want to say about his other family? How many children did he have? What was that whole situation at the time of his disappearance? Well, Bernard was still married to his wife uh, in Fargo. I believe they married in the uh, mid to late 40s. Um, mm -hmm. Did have four children with her. Okay. Um then there was a few more children uh, with another woman um, from Frazee, Minnesota. It's two of those uh, siblings that I've been working with primarily. And then uh, I believe there was another one in 1957. And then there was Brian. So I think there was 11 in total. Wow. Bernard had 11 kids. Yeah. And, wow. Uh, all right, yeah, that guy. Well, okay, yeah. well, he's certainly making up for me, who has zero. Okay, wow. Okay, so he had this, um, this, uh, these other families, other women that he had been with, had children, multiple children, and you even said that he worked with one of his children at that dealership. Is this Bernard the third? Is that the? Yeah, uh, that's yeah, Bernard the third. son. All right, and so that would have been from his first wife. Yeah, from his wife, yeah. Okay, and we'll talk about uh, that son maybe a little later. All right, let's move on to Peggy. You've already mentioned her a little bit, but 
Um, what do you want to say about her? What is um, have people said about her, her personality? Um, already mentioned kind of in the introduction here that she had been married and gotten divorced. Did she have any uh, children from prior marriages, prior relationships? What can you say about her? Uh, Peggy is a little harder to find things out on. I know she had married in 19... 1957 or 52, and I pardon me for not remembering right offhand here. Um, she had at least two children, I want to say possibly three, but as I was trying to go through my notes, wherever I had that written down was gone. Okay. Um, she lived in, uh, her and her husband, Owen McKay, lived in Fargo. Uh, Peggy worked predominantly as a waitress in Fargo, and I believe that's where her and Bernard met at a place called the Silver Tray in 1966. Hmm. Wow, so they had been, so once again, this disappearance happened in 1976, so they had known each other, or been together for like 10 years. Yeah, from, there is a police incident that occurred at the Silver Tray where it sounds like um, Peggy's husband came to the bar one night with a shotgun to confront wow. Bernard. And wow. And I believe that was the, um, nothing really became of it. Um, I think the police understood where he was coming from at the time and everything, uh, heads prevailed and they went their separate ways. And I believe that's when uh, Peggy and uh, her husband started to part ways there. Okay. So Bernard, and from what I understand, right around that same time, uh, Brian, who we're going to talk about here, mm -hmm. the last child was born in January of 67. And I know he was born in Shakopee, Minnesota, one of the southern suburbs. So I believe after the incident with uh, at the Silver Tray in 66, at some point in there, Bernard and Peggy moved to the South Metro where uh, Bernard works for a few different car dealerships. And that's where we can show where uh, Brian was born down there. Okay. Is it your impression then that Peggy was um, cheating on her husband with Bernard and that's how this uh, Brian was conceived or was uh, their son conceived after uh, Peggy had already gotten divorced? What is your perception of it? I've never really done the math. Um, what it seems, though, is that she was having a relationship with Bernard and eventually ended her marriage. Okay. Uh, so she, this, all right. So something started before she was officially divorced, and maybe that's what brought about the divorce. And I didn't start looking at conception dates or anything. Like okay. That. All right. Gotcha. Uh, so I guess we're also saying this, this shotgun uh, story, this was like 10 years before these two went missing. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So this is not something that happens close to that. Okay. All right. And uh, why do you think it has been maybe a little harder for you to find information on Peggy than it has been for Bernard? Your your impression working on this for four years? Well, I think part of it is the way the relationship was. Um, when you look at Bernard, left his family in Fargo and had essentially another family. Um, in that area and uh coupled up with peggy and i think peggy then you know divorcing her husband alienating herself from that family the husband still had the kids and raised them 
Okay. I I think it's there's wasn't as many people involved with their relationship. Everybody said they were rather quiet, kept to themselves. So there wasn't a lot of interaction. I think people knew them around town. Um, uh, the farm that this all took place on actually was owned at that time, at this time of the incident by Peggy's brother, George. Um, prior to that, that farm place had been owned by Peggy's parents and they moved out there from Fargo as kind of retirement place, a hobby farm. And then okay. just, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead here, but when- uh, Well, I just want to stick on, you know, is it is it, it, the reason that you don't have as much information about Peggy is because their fa her family just has not been very vocal over the years? Is it because that Peggy was a, a fairly private person? It, you know, what what's your in, in impression of that? I don't believe there's been much passed on. I think her ex-husband was a very, every, from all accounts that I've got, was a very quiet, uh, humble guy who took the task of raising his kids seriously. I don't think a lot was said about it. I did manage to talk with uh, the uh, wife of Peggy's grandson a couple of years ago for, all, for a bit, and the family really didn't know much about what happened or any of the details. Oh. They didn't know that she was missing, but that oh. was about the, uh, the extent of it. I did get to fill them in on a few things that, that I knew, but I don't think it was very, it wasn't talked about. I mean, you can go find the, the vital statistics on Peggy. Yeah. But on that, there's not a lot, a lot there. So are not you also saying, you know, she had any brothers or sisters, for example, uh, that they haven't done many interviews over the years, like when the, with any local papers or local media regarding her disappearance. That's just not something that's out there. No, it's most of the interviews and stuff have been with Bernard's family and Bernard's kids. Mm. Um, Peggy's brother, George, that on the property is deceased. I did talk with one of Peggy's sisters, Sally, out in Seattle and verified some information and talked to her about some stuff. Um, she has not, uh, they interviewed her once right after the incident and nobody's talked to her since then. Wow. Um, Okay. She had not any contact. She didn't have any contact with the, uh, or very little contact with the children from Peggy's marriage um, after she moved away from the area. So she's kind of uh, grown separate from the family a little bit, especially after their parents died. Okay. All right, let's move on to this. Uh, just about their son, whose name is Brian. Uh, do we know anything? Uh, of course, I think he was eight years old uh, when this all happened. Do we know anything about him in particular? Um, you know, was he? I, I'm guessing he was like in about what second or third grade, uh, or maybe he was homeschooled for all I know. But do we know anything in particular about him from anybody? One thing in there was that uh, uh, there was a they had a local person uh that uh, babysat for brian huh. uh and like peggy would drop him off and bernard would pick him up in the afternoon and evening mm -hmm. uh, after school um i'm not sure where he attended school that was always something i wanted to verify once and see if i could uh find maybe any classmates of his back in second or third grade just for some recollections and what i gathered from the statements is that brian was rather a quiet kid um 
uh, didn't interact with his dad a lot when they saw those, and he was kind of a, kind of a mama's boy in essence. He uh, he was very attached to Peggy, and they had a. It seemed like him and he and Peggy had quite quite a bond together. In this relationship, anything in your, uh, in talking to all these people and doing your own work, any allegations in this relationship between Bernard and Peggy of any abuse? Um, we have to remember they were not technically married, even though they've been living together for a while. Um, any abuse, any domestic violence, anything like that ever been alleged? Nothing that I've ever found. Um, I do think there might have been a, another relationship with bernard in that time he was with peggy i don't think it was substantial mm -hmm. um peggy i from what it seems like i don't know much about the time i spent in the twin cities um just seemed to be uh a mom uh, again there was not a lot uh about her put out there um just okay. a few things about uh locally you know she went to church with another family here and there and went to Bible study type stuff. And that was about the extent of anything with Peggy, but nobody was really aware uh, in that area of, of, of their relationship. In fact, most people thought they were married. Yeah. That's why sometimes you find her addressed as Peggy Rustness. Okay. Um, the, uh, there were some friends of theirs that lived up north that uh, uh, they did like to uh, drink or have parties and have people over and drink. I don't think there was anything to the point of being a problem, but that was this social thing back then too. You know, you get out, get together, play cards, have a few drinks. Um, that seemed to be the extent of their social life, at least at that time. But uh, nobody ever noted anything of uh, any real disagreements between them at all. Okay. Let's move on to this. Just some, um, you know, what we might call issues. Of course, anytime people get divorced, and they have children from prior marriages and a lot of bad blood can pop up. You know, children get jealous, jealous of the new children, ex-wives, there's custody and all sorts of things. How many, How once again, your impression, how much was this an issue with Bernard and Peggy with the prior marriages, relationships and children that they had? How big of an issue was this overall? It's kind of unclear. I know from statements given by Bernard's wife that he would uh, stop by at holidays and stuff, bring some birthday cards, things like that. I don't think he was real involved with the <clears throat> children from his marriage life, besides for the oldest son, which was, who was uh, in his mid-20s when this happened. Um, kind of unclear about his relationship with the uh, middle group of children. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not something we've ever really delved into. However, I don't imagine it was real intimate of a relationship. I don't know how much time he actually uh, spent with them, especially, you know, working and having Brian and then living in the cities and things like that. So that's a I don't think though there was any real conflict from what I want with like Peggy and her ex-husband. It sound I don't not sure how much contact she had with them mm -hmm. in that 10 or 11 year span there. Um uh one of her uh daughters that I 
I tried to reach out to, I found out passed away last year and that's how I got connected with the, uh, the uh, grandson's uh, spouse. Mm -hmm. So again, there's not a lot out there about it. One thing I've heard that uh, her ex-husband was a very hardworking, kind, quiet guy. And uh, there was no, uh, his name really never came up in the investigation as asked you, hey, maybe we should go back and look at him. I think uh, they both went on and started living their own lives and, and moved on. I don't believe, uh, I don't believe he ever remarried or anything either. Okay. All right. So as far as we can tell, doesn't sound like a lot as far as we know here. And uh, we're doing this interview on September 12th. 2022 as far as we can tell even though we know i mean we're all adults here for the most part um that you know we sometimes people do have problems with their exes and being estranged from their children and things like that not maybe a big factor in their lives as far as you can tell joe no and i kind of looked at that too even with the when you have when you're involved with that many uh relationships you might say that there might be somebody outside the family or outside yeah. uh the people that might be um looking to like not liking how you treated their family member yeah sure and I, and I and um even the mother of a few of his children too i looked into her family a little bit she had one brother that had passed away i believe in world war ii otherwise there wasn't that uh you know I thought maybe there was a big brother thing going on there. You know what? Like you messed with my sister type thing. Yeah. But that didn't find anything like that out there either. Uh, so I didn't find any, any sense of motivation within those immediate families. That would, okay. Uh, so I guess the answer then is uh, no. As far as we know, maybe there was, but no proof of any bitterness or, um, you know, any violence or threats or anything that uh have been able to be tracked down uh 40 what would it be 46 years later okay let's move on to this and may i think we're going to get into this a little bit we'll get into this a little bit deeper but uh there are stories though out there that maybe bernard and peggy might have um, been involved in a couple shady things not exactly like robbing banks or anything but uh, there's are a few stories out there. Where do these stories come from? When did these stories start coming out? I've seen some of the paperwork on it. How did you get it? Um, we don't know if we're not we're going to get to maybe do a little theorizing later. But, uh, you know, but of course, any shadiness, you have to start looking at this for a disappearance. What can you say about this? Once again, just in brief. Uh, as far as, well, Bernard was involved with body work and stuff like that with the, uh, Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's insurance stuff involved. And he actually worked at Twin Cities Auto Salvage uh, prior to going to work for the Chevrolet dealership where Peggy was working. Um, when you start to deal with stuff like that, you can speculate that there might be a little some things going on there. And, mm -hmm. and I think people trying to scam their insurance company a little bit is probably more common than what yeah. you most of us think. Probably, but I agree. The only thing uh that seemed to be concurred is that apparently at one time that those twin cities auto salvage were where peggy worked at um auctioned off um vehicles that they had their salvage stuff and apparently at one point there was a semi-tractor 
that a company from Wisconsin was interested in or outfit from Wisconsin was interested in. And from what I gathered in a few different statements throughout the documents that Peggy um, was given a sum of money to open the bids for that semi-tractor uh, overnight and then place a bid for $50 higher than the highest bid in the name of this company from Wisconsin. Huh. That and she was be... and she was paid to do this. She was given a sum to do this. Yeah, and uh, okay. that seems to be. It was brought up by a few different people in there. Um, Bernard had brought it up to another friend and said that he turned he was offered that, but he turned it down. Uh, but that doesn't seem to be the case. So that would be one instance where that would happen. And I've seen things too when you're dealing with salvage yards and things like that. The salvage yard was owned by uh, a husband and wife from St. Paul, Minnesota. This was kind of an offshoot of theirs. So they were still in the Twin Cities and Bernard and at first, then Peggy kind of uh, managed the operation, did the books and things like that. So that's, uh, I'm sure there's a few more things. Just I've dealt with people in similar industries that have done some under the table things as well so all right um do we know what the eventual result was of this bidding process did this company end up getting that bid or uh you know um how did that on end up going do we even know what the outcome was uh from what i gather it it happened that's what was was done and the money exchanged hands all right so yeah. she this successfully was pulled off that this company from Wisconsin did end up getting this vehicle that was at the Selvage Yard. Your, your understanding, okay. And how, uh, just on a date on that, was this like, just like a month before they went missing, a year before, do we even know? When was this? I would say that it had been within, um, see, happened in April. I'd say probably within the last six months prior to. All right, so within a half year of this happening, okay. All right, so we'll get I'll get a little deeper into that, uh, I'm sure, a little later. Let's move on to this. Being that we know in this particular disappearance, uh, the house that they were living in was burned down. This is not the first time we've talked about uh, a house being burned. Uh, the thing, I think this will be the third time we've talked about this on Unfound. But uh, you've already stated it, who owned it, but we'll go through it again. Who actually owned the house? How long? And then how long had Bernard and Peggy been living there? Um, you know, let's talk about that. Well, Peggy's brother, like I said earlier, um, Peggy's parents bought that property and moved out as a retirement place from the Fargo area. Then I believe when they passed, all the property went to um, Peggy's brother, George. The rest of the kids got a cash uh, from the estate. And from what I gather, once her parents had died and George taken over the property. Peggy and Bernard were living in the metro, the Twin Cities metro area. And Peggy and Brian moved from the metro back up to Wolf Lake and moved into the house, I guess, just to keep it occupied because uh, her brother had another property that he lived at. And Bernard commuted for a while on weekends, excuse me, from uh, the Twin Cities up there and eventually left his his job in the cities and came moved back to wolf lake mm -hmm. and then took, uh, took work in fargo 
And so they were basically, from what I understand, is uh, caretaking and working on the residence, remodeling it. Um, some question is who was paying for things. It was probably uh, a bit between George and them. And I don't know if the ultimate objective was that they were going to end up uh, purchasing the house or keeping the house, or if they were doing it to put things in order so that at some point uh, George could sell it. Mm -hmm. Okay. But, uh, they were. Any, any, uh, how long had Bernard been living at that location, being that he eventually moved in with Peggy and, and uh, living there? Of course, they had a child together. Uh, how long was Bernard living at that location before this all happened? I want to say, if I recall correctly, it was right around 75 when Bernard moved back up there. And I'm not real clear as to when Peggy had moved up. I know, um, it had to be within a few years, 74, 75, right around there when they actually moved up to the property. Okay, so not long, but not short either. Of course, we have to remember they'd known each other for 10 years, but they had only been living together on that property for maybe a year. It was probably, yeah, more like a couple, couple years, like 75, 74-ish. Okay. I'd have to refresh too and see where, I'm sure I've got some kind of a better date than that, but. Okay. So not, we're not saying the whole entire time, but he just kind of knew uh, moving up there. Um, you said they were remodeling. They were doing this work themselves. Uh, I, I have to ask, being that they didn't technically own it, was like the brother paying for this and they were doing the work? Or do we have any specifics on, on all of that? Because we have to remember, eventually this house burnt to the ground, even though it was getting remodeled at the time. So who was paying for these remodeling and um who was doing the work well i think bernard and peggy were doing a lot of the work i think believe they put a new septic system in um did some cabinets things like that uh, and they were uh i believe they were living there basically rent free and i think in mm -hmm. turn some of that work was going on in the house to uh to remodel it and stuff what the ultimate outcome would have been i have no idea it's never really stated there as to whether George was going to just let them have the house or if they were going to uh, buy it from him or sell it uh, after the work was done. Mm -hmm. It's not, there's not really clearly stated anywhere in there. Okay. And on this property, there are other buildings. What in general can you say about these? You've already said it's kind of like a, a hobby type of farm that the parents had before. What other buildings are on this property? Um, as you come up the driveway, there's at uh, the end of the, towards the end of the driveway, also being your left-hand side, there's some lilac bushes and a walkway going up to the front of the house. And off to your right would be a storage shed. And then directly in front of you would have been a barn. It's not your atypical, um, don't, you know, uh, barn. Mm -hmm. It's a large red shed, essentially. Okay. Um, and then off to that would have been the windmill and the pump house to the just to the left of that barn. And as you come into the uh, back side of the house, there's a two car garage off on the uh, offset a ways. And then next to the house, there was a small uh, shed, which probably would have been first purposed for like gardening type stuff, you know, a potting shed or something. And I believe at the time Bernard used that to like repair firearms and stuff on his spare wow. time. Okay, and, so he did that in his spare time, working with guns in his spare time. Okay. 
and everything is still there except for obviously the house. I was on a property a few years ago. Um, the house is obviously gone and the pump house is gone, but the other buildings are still standing and still there as they were at the time of the fire. As a matter of fact, there's still a swing hanging from the tree, which is kind of mm -hmm. uh, a little creepy. Yeah. Yeah, a little creepy. Yeah. Uh, do you know it's uh, maybe a, not a question I've thought to ask you before? I have to admit, it's been 46 years. They never built another house on the property. So nobody ever lived on that property again after this happened in 1976. No, and it's currently the, the, uh, if used as a uh, pasture land <clears throat> by the current owner. Mm -hmm. um, so the first time I talked to him about going up there, he was actually grazing cattle on the property, but for the second time, um, he didn't have cattle on that property anymore. So there's a lot of pasture land, some trees surrounding the house, and then pasture land out to the, to the uh, south side of the house. Okay. That is interesting to me. The brother continued to own that uh, land after the house burnt down, but never built another house on there. I'm going to think about that. Okay, let's move on to this. And just, uh, of course, a lot of uh, the people who listen to this program are not uh, uh, out there in the hinterlands, the, the, the rolling hills of the United States. But we're going to talk about this just so everybody knows what this word means. And we're going to be talking about a furrowed driveway. What does furrowed mean? Or harrowed. Um, Hard, yeah, hard, yes. Out in the rural areas, um, most driveways are gravel. And during the spring, you get like a lot of the frost heaves and stuff coming up. The driveways will get very wet uh, with the spring rain and the thawing, and they'll become potholed and rough and muddy. And what they basically would do is, um, on the gravel roads today too, they have uh, graders that will go out and turn the turn the uh, the rock and the gravel over to promote driving, and that's basically what happened in the driveway. <clears throat> they they would come out and basically turn the driveway over, till it up a little bit mm -hmm. to level it, and then promote drying. As we were looking at, we're in the early part of April, where yeah. I don't believe there's a lot of snow around at that time, but we're in the in that thawing season. And a lot of times you'll hear it, or I'd never really heard the term before, but harrowed is one of the things, that, the, a farm term that we harrowed the driveway and okay. turned it over and it. And so there. does that leave it, um, does that leave it a little, it'll dry faster, but maybe a little sloppy? Um, would it promote, of course, where we're going with this, would this uh, mean that maybe, for example, tire tracks might be easier to see in a harrowed driveway in contrast to a regular driveway or gravel driveway what would you say your experience well it would be it would be soft because it was just turned up because the gravel would eventually compacts down and then in the spring that's where that mud is at so they'd go in it they'd end up turning that all over re-putting the rocks over so the driveway would be rather soft at that time and i don't know if, if people are familiar like when you till a garden something yeah. you turn it over there's a smooth surface so anything that basically goes on that is going to leave indentations foot through or something whether and it's with a human footprint or something like that okay yeah eventually when the right. driveway's moving on it compacts again and firms up okay so we're going we're going to be talking about that in a moment because some of the people who came upon this scene talk about that all right so let's move up so this is everything that was going on in bernard 
and Peggy's lives. They had these jobs, um, uh, pretty standard life, two people living together. They have a son together. They're all living on this property, fixing it up, which I think is noteworthy being that eventually the house burnt down and um, just kind of living their lives. They have, of course, Bernard has a lot of children, but it seems not a lot of things, at least uh, here in general, for them to be worried about. So let's move up to April 3rd. 1976 what do we know about earlier in that day was this a work day for both of them was this a school day what day of the week was this what what do we know or do we do we know anything about earlier in the day there was a saturday and from what i i've never found anything in the reports it's online there's some things out there stating that the driveway was Harrowed or turned over earlier in the day that day. That the very day. <clears throat> okay. And that there's reports of them being in town at the grocery store. I've never read anything about that in the reports. It's not saying that it didn't happen. It might have been relayed in like a newspaper interview with somebody, you know, saying, well, I just saw him earlier today. Uh, mm -hmm. None of that is actually in the reports that that happened that day. Okay. Uh, there was things we know or can assume uh, it was a Saturday. Uh, the weather was rather, I mean, it was nice. It was, I believe, in the 50s, 60s type thing where a person could go work outside comfortably. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there was a hood up on one of the vehicles, a pickup truck um, to indicate that they at one time during the day they were outside working. Okay. But that's really about we all know uh factually for okay. that day. so i guess what i'm asking you maybe just maybe just as it just once again just an example did any uh did did for example did bernard talk to any of his children or friends on the phone that day have you ever heard anything like that not that was ever brought up about anything any conversations that have gone on through that day okay. that was one thing too it's kind of surprised me too is that um there was no phone records in the um, case files. And I would have thought that that would have been something that would have been good. Because back in the day, before cell phones, yeah. you know, you've got your, I know where I grew up, everything outside of town, and I lived in a small town, was long yeah. distance. That's right. Me you too. You got the bill every month with the little charges and the yes. numbers you call. Yes. That's right. That's right. You wanted to call somebody 10 miles away, it cost you. Yeah, kids these yeah. days will never know that. Yeah, they'll never know. Yeah. So that was one uh, thing that was absent. I really wish something like that would have been included, but right. it wasn't. Okay, so we don't, it just doesn't seem we have a lot of solid information about anything earlier that day. Uh, but I don't know if we're going to the point of saying they actually disappeared during the day, right? Yeah, um, we don't know. Okay. I mean, there's indications, you know, that we had talked about. Um, and we'll probably get into that a little more with the we fire. Will. We will. I guess what we're saying is the timeline of this day is not as precise as we'd like it to be. Exactly. Okay. Nothing. All right. So this is just something that people have to remember. We're going to talk about what these witnesses then saw, but it's still a little bit up in the air as to when these disappearances actually happened. Uh, so we have to keep that in mind. All we know is, I guess, the day before that Bernard was at work, that Friday with the job that he had, and then sometime before Saturday night when these flames were seen, something happened. So let's move on to that. 
what and of course uh, a lot of this paperwork uh, uh, Joe is going to make a lot of this paperwork available on his own on the discussion group he has permission to post some of these things we're going to be talking about paperwork witness statements is uh, everything and I will of course be posting it these on Unfound's website both places so you can see these things for yourselves what these people said right then at the time in 1976 from reports but in your own words, Joe, what did these people see on that night? Uh, what time what did these witnesses see regarding that house? Well, the initial report was made by a woman driving home from work who uh, was driving by the property. The property itself, the house itself probably sits, uh, oh, I actually went and measured it at one time, probably a hundred and some yards off the actual gravel road in the front of the house. Uh, when this woman was driving by, she looked over and noted that she saw flames in the basement window on the northwest corner of the house. Uh, she turned around, uh, drove back into town to notify the fire department. Uh, this is days before 911. And uh, it's kind of a little different, different than when I was on the fire department, too. So she drove back into town to notify the fire department. She stated it was right around 11 p.m. Okay. Roughly uh, at a time that was also said to be 11 uh, p.m., a carload of kids, we'd call them that now, um, were driving up County Road 43 North going into Wolf Lake to go up to the bar. And they noticed flames off, the, off to the side of the road. They were on a, a road that would be parallel to the farmhouse. And they went up to see if uh, what was burning. So they pulled up, they found the house. Uh, when they approached, they found uh, flames coming out in one of the upstairs windows and then through the roof line on the northwest side of the house. Hmm. Uh, they pulled up the driveway. Uh, they noticed, it was noted that they almost got stuck because the driveway was soft. Right. Uh, from having right, we just talked about. Yep. Okay. Very good. Um, they pulled up to the residence. Um, uh, they approached the house, the doors were locked, they looked inside, they didn't see anybody on the main floor. Uh, they went and uh, turned off the LP gas tank, uh, leading to the house to protect it. And eventually, when they couldn't make entry, turned back around and went back into town to notify the fire department uh, to find out that they're already getting ready to come out there. Mm -hmm. By the time the fire department, oh, uh, arrived at the house. It was uh, fully engulfed. Yeah, they basically had to go into a defensive mode to protect the uh, other buildings on the property. Okay. Now, maybe I should I should have asked you this. You being that you've been there, and I, maybe things have changed since 1976. Regarding neighbors, how close do people, other people, live to this property? There is a turkey farm across the road and down maybe. A quarter mile but i do not believe that that i don't know what it was like back then that's not an occupied farm it's the long more industrial type farm with the uh long buildings that house you know mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds yeah. of turkeys so i don't believe i don't believe there's a house on that property exactly i can't recall offhand but otherwise you're looking at at neighbors were usually um the long driveways were fairly common. So you're looking at it's uh, a farm field or two away from- uh, Maybe a quarter mile? 
Yeah, probably. Because, yeah, usually a township square is a mile by a mile square. And there might be one other house down the, yeah. the line. So. Okay. So that might be a reason maybe that a neighbor did not notice the flames um, is because they just don't live that close. And, of course, it's a Saturday night. Maybe they're, of course, not looking for flames anyway. Maybe. And with a fire, <clears throat> talk about this a little bit more, but uh, like we said, from the woman driving by the house, seeing the flames in the basement window. Yeah. To the kids driving up County Road 43, seeing the flames in the sky. Yeah. Both of them said it was right around 11 o'clock. So we're looking maybe a 10 to 15 minute window right around that time. So it really it took off relatively quickly. So I don't know if a neighbor, a neighbor might have eventually seen it, although it was 11 o'clock at night. A lot of yeah. people were probably in bed at that time. There were some trees surrounding the backside of the property. <clears throat> Excuse me, not in abundance, but were enough where it would shelter the, until the flames got higher, it would shelter any visibility to the house from uh, okay. other parts of the just want to make sure that the listeners understand why it took two passers-by in cars to see the fire first in contrast to a neighbor. And the reason is that, that the neighbors just don't live that close. Um, let's move on to this. So when the fire department shows up, of course, you uh, you do that uh, these days, uh, Joe, but uh, you've already stated that it was beyond, there was nothing that could be done. Uh Eventually, what was left? Was anything left of the house? Was it anything in the house standing at all? Or had it just all collapsed in on itself? What is your understanding? Uh, there was one wall left standing or part of a wall, I believe, on the south side of the house that one of the fire departments in their statement stated that they ended up pushing into the fire to let it burn away because it was unstable. So basically, the, the house burned to ash. Uh, by the time it was all said and done, uh, the firefighters that I talked to, they weren't sure uh, of the occupancy of the house, even though there was cars there. I know neighbors were calling around asking to see if they knew where they were at. However, one of the firefighters I talked to a few weeks ago stated that shortly after that, you knew that the house was occupied by the smell wow. of and that's one of those things you, when you smell it, you don't forget it. Okay. And that was how they knew there was at least someone in the house during okay. the fire. And that does bring us to the next uh, topic, of course, now going into April 4th, the next day, of course, they're going to search. And what did they find? Well, it was over a matter of a day or so, too, where they, um, the state fire marshal had told the firefighters that the best thing to do was just let the house burn to ash <clears throat> because it would be easier to go through the house. Um, they removed some of the heavier appliances and things like that that were in there and they sifted through all of the ash in a very structured manner. Um, the fire marshal was explaining to some of the firemen though, they could tell by where you found things in the layers of the ash about where they were actually positioned in the house when everything happened mm -hmm. um it was during this time that they actually found the remains of uh of brian uh all that was left was the basically the upper torso uh upper part of the torso and and the head the shoulders um they also found remains of a small dog 
the bones of a small dog in the house. Uh, one thing that was noted, they went through it. They found coins and stuff in the fire. Uh, but one of the firemen noted that the unusual thing is they didn't find any kind of uh, zippers or buttons or anything like that from clothing, which was kind of unusual. They would have expected to find remnants of something like that, being that they actually went through the point where they found coins and stuff inside the so fire. Metal objects, not uh, the fire is not hot enough to melt metal objects like coins and things. Maybe cheaper metal things, but, you know, coins, of course, high, high quality metal, not burned. And I think the point they're making is that there are things that are in houses that are a combination of of fabric and metal and of course the fabric would burn but the metal wouldn't such as suitcases or something but they didn't find anything like that and i think too you're looking at the house there's varying uh uh heat within the house because you looked at brian's body yeah. uh we're only finding the upper torso but yet we found the skeletal remains of a small dog so you oh, probably right. had different yeah in different portions of the house and not an expert or anything like that, but it seems strange though that they didn't find anything. They expected to find more sifting through the fire than what they actually found. Okay. Now, uh, like you said though, Brian, at least half of him is found. The entire the skeletal remains of a dog are found, but of course, Bernard and Peggy not found. Uh, the remains are not found. Um, you know, for example, of course, the being that I just have to ask this, any of their clothes inside, any signs uh, that, for example, that anyone was trying to actually fight the fire while it was happening? What can you say about any of that? Like I said, there was no <clears throat> no remnants of clothing or anything like that they, they actually found in the fire. I think if, uh, I don't know if you want to step back to the fire a little bit. Go ahead. Uh, when you look, the fire started in the uh, from the first report of it around eleven o'clock. Yeah, <clears throat> noted in the northern corner of the basement, they could see, be seen through the basement window. However, when the the car full of uh, kids came up, who also stated it was around eleven o'clock, the roof line of the house in the upstairs window also had flames in them. Mm-hmm. We're only talking a matter of a few minutes here. So I know the older house constructions. So a fire set or oriented in the basement, old house construction, or what they call balloon construction, that they didn't have any, there was a hollow void between the interior and the exterior wall. Nowadays, they'll build that and they'll have, uh, required to have fire breaks in there to prevent this exact thing from happening. So I'd say that fire in the basement traveled up inside the walls. Do you note that uh, the kids, when Tony, when he looked in the house, didn't see anything on the main floor involved. Hmm. Just know the, the doorknobs were hot, but he didn't see anything involved. So the fire would have probably more than likely traveled through the interior of the wall to the roof line of the house, taking the path of least resistance. And that's why you see a lot of those cases that the, the attic will get involved in that fire. And we saw that here too. Or <clears throat> a matter of a few minutes later, we've got a fire in the attic or in the ceiling. And then, too, by the time the fire department responded, mind you, there was a small department. The house was uh, virtually engulfed. So you get the fire comes up through the walls, goes into the void of the attic, 
probably travels back across over in the heat and and ends up engulfing the house. So I guess what you're saying is it's possible if you have a three-story house or a two-story house with a basement that is that a fire could start in the basement and actually the second story would catch fire first before the first story. So you'd have a space conceivably. Most construction it would be. It was quite common. Okay. And they were uh, quite dangerous. That's one of the things we learned about when I went through training and stuff mm -hmm. is balloon construction. Okay. It was common back then. All right. So uh, thank you for that. Thank you for explaining that. So uh, still Bernard and Peggy, of course, once they did go through the house, uh, bones are found for Brian, bones are found for the dog. No remains are found of Bernard and Peggy. But given where uh, Brian's remains were found, could they deduce where he might have been before the fire ever started or during the fire? Did it look, for example, that he was trying to escape? Was he found like near a door? Do we, any any idea regarding any of that? Well, I recently kind of found out through a couple of firefighters I, I interviewed. Um, Brian's body, like I said, it was just basically the shoulders, the upper part of the torso and the head um, were found in a, a root cellar in the basement. Huh which was cemented off where they assumed was like kind of a root cellar off to the side of the basement, you know, the dark place where they store potatoes and stuff like that. Now, I do have a very rough diagram that somebody drew of what how the house was laid out. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> it could have been, it's not noted anywhere in the fire report about where the remains were found in regards to the ashes. It could be possible that where they had Brian sleeping in the upstairs, that the floor may have collapsed and right. Brian's ended up in this part of the basement. Sure. So it's all speculation. There was nothing stated about, you know, we we're talking about the layers of ash where they were in the house. Mm -hmm. So this is just things I gathered from the fire the firefighters that were on scene. Nothing is actually really noted about that stuff or even actually where it was in the house all right so nothing could concretely be deduced as to whether for example brian was trying to escape where he was uh did he die of smoke inhalation or anything else we really don't we still don't know that that information no that's something too uh, uh the only thing stated in the medical examiner's report that brian seemed to be wrapped in a blanket or a tablecloth hmm. um was wrapped around his body and burnt away um so i i doubt he was uh awake at any time but there wasn't any lung tissue left because if we would have had that we could have determined that if there was smoke inhalation sure. after the fire died if there wasn't right. smoking that something happened right. to him prior to the fire right so that we, we was undetermined or couldn't be determined at that time I guess uh, maybe to use another example, maybe an example that maybe many people will remember from uh, how long ago was this? Many years ago that the, the 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 band Great White had this concert, this little concert in a bar in Rhode Island. And of course, it was a horrendous fire there due to pyrotechnics that caught the insulation on fire. And like 50, you know, many 50 some people or even more got killed. And of course, most of those bodies were found near the, these two exits or an exit, people trying to leave, well, they all got, you know, crowded up there. They all kind of stuck themselves in this doorway and they all died of smoke inhalation. Of course, that could be determined. 
um, being that they were all their remains were found in this particular area. What you're saying here is that could, that kind of thinking could not be used for where Brian was found in this house that was burned down. Yeah, it's uh, it wasn't near the front door. The front door would have been he would have been found on the uh, the what would have been the back side of the house away from the front door. However, I believe there was another uh, screen type door uh, on the main floor going out the other direction. Uh, but okay. just the indication that he was wrapped in something would probably mean that he didn't uh, uh, wasn't conscious maybe at the time the fire happened um that he was still wrapped right and the thing is i'm thinking you know I've, i remember those old uh you know fire you know fire safety commercials from like the 1990s and 80s that you know um if you're trying to escape a house you know wrap you know put like a blanket or something mm -hmm. over your head maybe he was attempting to do that maybe yeah, it was well just struck them unusual though is that it seemed to be wrapped. Okay. But I'm thinking, in contrast though. Okay. The only thing I was thinking about that possibly would be, you know, if uh um kid falls asleep on the couch with a blanket, you know, you wrap him up in the blanket, carry him upstairs, lay him on bed. You know, that yeah. is a possible scenario of how I was thinking something like that could have taken place. Okay. But, and as far as, uh, of course, you already mentioned the vehicles. I, I guess they had two cars. These two cars were not damaged by this fire, even though they were parked out front? No, and the fire didn't seem to spread much beyond the the actual physical house itself. Uh, the the uh, shed I talked about that was used for, like, gun repair and stuff was probably, oh, maybe 50 feet away from the house. Hmm. And then the tree with the swing in it, was relatively close to the corner of the house as well. And they uh, never caught that, fire at all. I mean, I imagine there was some singeing of the upper branches and things like that. It was that close enough for that. Okay. But nothing on the exterior was. Everything else, like the pump house and the barn, the garage were relatively distant from, from the house. I mean, as far as something jumping over to them. Okay. Um, just some questions for you. And I think maybe being that you are involved in firefighting might, you know, you might be able to help us with this in 2022. Do we know, does the public know, or is there any, or is there any paperwork regarding the actual cause of the fire? What started the fire in that house? Do we know? Well, uh, we do have the, the, uh, fire state fire marshals report, which basically gives a overview of what happened to the house and the, type of property it was and some of his notes from the scene there was mm -hmm. nothing noted in that report as to far as far as the source was uh mm. was and at the end of the report he said that since there was a fatality and there were sus suspicious circumstances they were going to turn it over to the minnesota bureau of criminal apprehension and then things to be determined later there's nothing in the BCA report that states any kind of origin of the fire. Um, I did call the state fire marshal's office, and no records from that long ago have been retained at all. Um, although the gentleman I talked to was uh, new, the state fire marshal that wrote the report, uh, Rusty Talman, and he had good things to say about his uh, character and his ability uh, as a fire state fire marshal. But no, nothing was ever referenced to the source of the fire or any speculation about the fire itself. 
So this is just where I'm going on things that stick out to me. So I'm not an arson investigator by any means, but I think when you start looking at things, it, it, there's a common sense that goes to it. Okay. I'll just bring up, there is no A word. In any of the paperwork that you ever heard, has the word arson ever come up? Not that I can recall directly. It may have been mentioned. The M word, murder, has come up okay. several times. Uh, which I kind of find, it's kind of funny because when I was dealing, trying to get records, uh, I got great help from the Becker County Sheriff's Office and the like, but I went to the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, um, bringing the same case there. I wanted to get their files, copy of the files, and they said, basically, take a hike. This is a murder investigation. Hmm. And, you know, uh, we aren't going to give you anything, even though by law they were supposed to. But I figured I'm not going to sit and I could get the records via the family. So I wasn't going to get into a uh, standoff with the uh, Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. So I kind of gave up that aspect of it. Uh, but, see, the murder thing was brought up, too, when I was trying to retrieve the records. And I had to point out that murder is just conjecture because there was actually no physical it's an no. assumption and baby yeah. is safe as well but there was nothing physically that said you know uh through the medical examiner's office they they x-rayed and did different tests on on the remains to see if there was any metal or bullet fragments anything like that and they couldn't find anything uh concluding a cause of death that they could nail down so it All right. really, no so we're not, uh, I guess what I'm asking you is, is there anything in any of the paperwork you said that saw it read that says that this fire was planned, that it was set? No, not that I actually saw. Okay. But, right. some things, but nothing that I saw stated in there. I think when you start going through later uh, documents, when you start looking in hindsight and conjecture, things are probably brought up, but not initially. Okay. And all I'm interested in is the investigation that was done on the fire. As far as you know, the paperwork you've ever been found found that is official, nothing has ever been stated. Yes, we believe this fire was intentionally set. No, nothing there. Okay. Because, you know, of course, listeners of Unfound, we have a lot of experience in this area. Dorian Myers' house and car set on fire on purpose. The Freeman's trailer set fire on purpose. Um, uh, Jeremy Burt's car set on fire on purpose and for sure. Whereas with this very well may be so, but it's not, it, there's nothing, even though there was an investigation done, nothing in the paperwork that you've been able to find. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. You just haven't found it yet. That's correct. I, I don't think the fire, from what it looks like, the fire itself, the investigation of the fire never progressed that far. Okay. It went right away into the, the, the deceased boy and the missing parents. I guess, I guess uh, the thing is, is that eventually they would figure out that the two adults aren't there. Uh, maybe they thought that, that they died in the fire and their, their remains got turned to ash, but surely I would hope that somebody in a position to uh, investigate this or know a little bit about this would know that the human body cannot be burned that easily. I mean, we have the remains of a full dog that's left behind. What are the odds that a, a human's remains, uh, you know, are going to be burned up? But, um, 
But that does lead me to the question, as best you can tell, looking at all this paperwork, uh, what the investigators think happened. Uh, and at that point, being that Bernard and Peggy's remains were not found in the, the remains, was an APB put out for them, a be on the lookout for, anything like that, uh, as to far as trying to find the parents of this boy who died in the fire? Any of that? What can you say about all that? Since all the vehicles and everything were still on the house, there was no, uh, because of the driveway, there was no indication that anybody had gone in or out of the farm place uh, prior to the kids pulling up there in the car. Uh, I know the next day they had searched the property surrounding there, I, I can't remember the perimeter, but there was a creek down the road. Uh, they searched the, the meadows, the nearby woods, across the woods, thinking that maybe they, the house was on fire and they tried fleeing the house. They were maybe injured, laying out in a field someplace or deceased in the field someplace. Mm -hmm. So that was the initial thing. And like it with Milda, I don't think anybody jumps to that uh, that conclusion right off the bat. I mean, you want to be a little skeptical and, you know, Murphy's Law, well, what's the most likely thing? Our most likely thing is they didn't just run away, you know, something they've got to be laying out here someplace. So I think that's the thing where you didn't start going to where the parents go as far as a, a mystery. It's like trying to find out where exactly, you know, did they run from the house? Did they fall in here? They were there. Um, it's kind of where they went that first part. So. You didn't start looking at it as a as a real investigation initially. I think. Mm -hmm. When would you say that that uh, eventually happened? I mean, how long did it take? I mean, I can understand. You know, maybe they're thinking maybe right away, right at that second. Well, you know, there's a fire, and you know, maybe the parents, maybe something happened, and they had to leave their son at home. And they had to take a car somewhere, even though all both cars are there, but they might not know that. At some point, they have to think, though, that the parents are going to come back. Of course, they didn't. So it would seem to me that they did start thinking, well, what's going on here? And, and can you tell from any of the paperwork what their insight was into Bernard and Peggy at the time when they didn't come back? I, I think that's when, the, well, it was shortly after they established that nobody was in the woods mm -hmm. and stuff surrounding the house that they're starting to go, okay what's going on here all yeah. the cars are here um so then they went out and started interviewing uh people who were acquainted with them uh looking into the background and what they might have been doing uh, one of the friends that they talked to who at the time was quoted to be bernard's best friend he also owned a body shop in another part of northern minnesota <clears throat> um told uh He's one of the people that also mentioned the thing about the bid ringing, but he said that Bernard was a very paranoid guy mm -hmm. and that he uh, would have never left uh, the hood of the car open. Apparently, the, the keys were left in a padlock to the pump house, which uh, Bernard was a type that would lock doors behind him. And for him okay. to leave the keys and the ignitions of the cars, the hood up, the path, the doors of the outbuildings open, was very out of character for him. Okay. So then they started, you know, then you start looking at a little bit more of what, trying to figure out what happened that night. 
Okay. Um, Anything in the paperwork that would lead you to um, like any insight into the investigators thoughts regarding all of this suspecting uh, Peggy and Bernard is being responsible for this. Is there anything in any writing that you've seen where they thought, you know, maybe reading between the lines, they suspected this was done by Peggy and Bernard together? I don't think there is so much to it. I don't think they ever um, written on paper. I found out there's things that they didn't necessarily write down that weren't real pertinent, but more opinion-wise. Nothing that was written down stating, hey, I really think they did something here. Okay. Uh, and interviewing things, uh, uh, the, it was said that, oh, maybe he had some mafia stuff that they came after him because of. Yeah, we're not, uh, all I'm asking you is anything I'm in the nothing, paperwork, anything. Nothing that would go down say, stating any, anything specifically. Okay. All right, so we have this situation. The fire happens. Young boy's found. He's deceased. His parents are nowhere to be found, even though both of their cars will get into the cars a little bit later here. But the parents are missing. Uh, maybe the fire was an accident. Maybe it was on purpose. All we know is that the parents of this son uh, never came home. Um, they've never been tracked down. Of course, they're still missing 46 Years later, we don't know the cause of the fire. We don't know if it was arson. We don't know if it was accidental. Uh, there's a lot of things uh, that you know that we still don't know about this fire that I think might be helpful to us in trying to narrow down what could have happened in this disappearance. So let's now jump in, jump into uh, so a lot of these things in a little more technical detail. But I know maybe for the listeners, this is going to be a weird place to start. But let's talk about dogs because. Of course, we've already talked about there was a dog that was found deceased in the house. But my understanding is there were two dogs that were found locked in the barn that is mentioned in one of these reports. And then there were dogs that were outside that somebody actually saw running around near the house. Um, how many dogs did Bernard and Peggy have? How many dogs were found at the scene? Um, you know, how do we make sense of this? It just seems like there's a lot more dogs on the scene than the, than Bernard and Peggy had. Am I, or am I missing something here? I actually, I'm not positive. Now in that carload of uh, kids that pulled up at 11 o'clock when the house was, um, they tried to get entry into the house and shut off the gas. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the women that was in the car stated in her statement that she got out of the car, two dogs approached her. And she remembers uh, soothing them, scratching them on the head, scratching their ears, and then going up to see if she could assist with the house fire. Okay. Doesn't come across in and of itself as strange. But in a statement taking in a cold case investigation, one of the firefighters was on scene, stated in, this, uh, in his uh, interview that one of the things he recalls is when he got out to the farm, uh, he found two dogs locked inside the barn. Huh. I haven't been able to find the woman that did this initial report mm -hmm. to verify that she did not put them in the barn, but it didn't, certainly didn't sound like she did anything with the dogs besides pat their head and walk away. Right. So we've got two dogs that somehow got locked in the barn. Um, the dog's remains found in the fire. Yeah. Uh, we're of a small dog. I'm not aware 
not aware of any of the dogs actually. I did talk to somebody who um, was out there the next day of the fire that was uh, associated with Bernard's eldest son that stated that uh, didn't sound like she knew they had a small dog. She just made an assumption that they did because there was one found in the fire. They ended up taking one dog that they found on the property. There was only one that they knew of, a boxer named Rocky, that uh, they took with them back into Fargo, and, and she's not sure if it was put up for adoption or anything. Mm -hmm. So we know about Rocky. We know a small dog that died in the house fire. So mm -hmm. where the other dog came from, how this all got taken care of, I have no idea. Right. I mean, I, I think a lot of people are going to think, well, there's two dogs that were there. Maybe somebody showed up and just to make sure the dogs didn't run away, they brought the dogs over to the shed and put them in there just so they wouldn't run away. It could be the same very two dogs. But then we have to start thinking about, well, who would do that? And if the shed was actually locked, well, how would somebody do that if they're, you know, locked the shed or was the door just shut and not locked? It gets a little, you know, it gets a little confusing. I'm not sure if it was actually padlocked or if it was just secured to the point where the dogs could not get out of the building. Um, yeah, it brings up a lot of speculation. Uh, the second dog, besides Rocky, could have very well been uh, another farm dog that a lot of times farm dogs will, you know, they live outside, they'll wander across the field to a neighboring property. Not unusual. Could have been that. The only thing I found curious about that <clears throat> is when we look back, at the fire, um, how rapidly it, it moved from just being flames in the window. So, and unless it would have been some kind of a type of spontaneous combustion, like an old rag with paint thinner on it, which could have happened, but yeah, in scenario, more than likely not because of all the extenuating circumstances involved with this. Um, Just to show with the dogs being locked up again, there very well could have been somebody left on the property between the leaving of when the uh, carload of kids left and the arrival of the fire department. Mm -hmm. The fire did take off and the house was consumed in a relatively short time. So in thought that there could be um, a person that was still on the property that then in the absence of the kids and before the fire department decided to throw the dogs yeah. in the barn just to get them out of the way too or so the dogs didn't follow them so yeah and we just wonder, have to you know we have to wonder does it make sense that these two dogs would have been outside at night you know just roaming around while one dog was inside you know this this is why i decided to start this kind of like in this spot it, the dog situation to me is uh is a bit curious um so yeah, the varying stories on them kind of once i start talking to the fire department to the guys i'm like well that's kind of weird this isn't quite adding up mm -hmm. the dog stories yeah okay the dogs all right let's move on to this now you've already stated this but this do this again uh you stated that a friend of bernard says he was a paranoid kind of paranoid guy but this uh this th there was a shed and the padlock had the keys in it is that correct Yes, one of the fire department reported that keys in the vehicle and then keys left in the padlock opened on it was either the gun shed or the uh, pump house 
I think I've heard the pump house more than the gun shed. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but like I said, it was unusual for him because he was a person that by the time the sun went down, he would add all the buildings locked up and secured and the keys back. Right. I think it's, uh, you know, uh, just on its face, you know, maybe you can see something being left unlocked, but just to actually leave the keys in the lock. I don't know how many people do that. People usually carry their keys for things on them, you know, for something like a padlock. They just don't leave it in the lock. Maybe Bernard was different or Peggy was different. And you never know if you if you have uh, padlocks on all your buildings, maybe you leave it in the last padlock so you don't mm-hmm. misplace them somewhere. And you and you, I guess I can maybe see that a little bit uh, where there wasn't. It was out in the middle of the country where I, nobody's going to wander down the street and come up and see the keys hanging there. But it's something definitely you would have secured things up and taken them back with you, too. Yes. All right. So we have these keys uh, that are in this padlock. And now we're going to talk about the vehicles. The keys were left in the vehicles. But maybe more importantly, the hood was still open on this particular, uh, was it a truck or a Bronco or some type of old school SUV? And was Bernard working on it? What I gathered is that Bernard was working on either putting a, <clears throat> sounded like like a PA system in the truck underneath the hood. Uh, there was a couple things at stereo and there was stuff about a CD, but CB. I don't know, you remember, uh, I don't know how redneck you were back when you were a kid, but when you get out in the country here, everybody had the CB in their truck. Oh, yeah, no, I know. Also, we didn't uh, have one, but my next-door neighbor uh, out there in Gilpin Township outside of Leechburg, he had a, his own CB antenna. He would talk to truckers going through the area. Yeah, I know all about that. There's a button, uh, dial on there that says PA. So since the radio itself had the ability, people would go wire a, a speaker underneath their hood, too, so they could use it as a... PA system too. Um, that's what I'm imagining uh, Bernard was probably doing in conjunction with the CB radio, putting in some speakers underneath the hood to you know, take full advantage of, of his CB. Okay. And so what you're saying is when those kids showed up, when the witnesses showed up, when the fire department showed up, the vehicles are there, but the hood is up on this particular vehicle and the keys are in them. That's what they found out later. The kids didn't bother to go look mm-hmm. inside the cars. They were basically focused on the house. Yeah. Uh, they were conscious enough to shut off the, the LP tank going into the house. Um, hopefully prevent an explosion from the inside type thing. Okay. And they also noted that uh, one of the witnesses noticed that, that there was no explosion because, or she noted that all the windows in the house were still intact. So it's mm-hmm. not like there was an explosion that, uh, Mm-hmm. Or a gas explosion in the basement or something that blew the windows out. So that was okay. I'm just I'm surprised she she was aware enough to know. Okay, so and you did notice maybe this is something notable uh, before is that you stated when those kids got there, the person went up to the front door and tried to open it, and he said the door was locked. Yep, the door to the door to the house was locked because he wanted to go in and check because if anyone was in the house or yell inside the house and see if anybody was there. Um, like you said, when he looked through the window, uh, there was nothing on the main floor involved at that time. But the door was locked and he couldn't make entry into the house. Okay, so we have a we have a shed that has a lock on it, but the key is in the lock. We have two cars that are out front with the keys in them and the hood's up on one. 
but the front door to the house is locked. Yes. Okay. Let's move on to this, the driveway. We've talked about it being harrowed, being plowed so that it would drain or dry properly uh, to be nice and smooth again. But you stated, as far as anybody could tell or uh, remember, uh, no extra tire tracks, no footprints, anything like that. Outside, of course, you know, these teenagers showing up, you know, there's going to be tire tracks or footprints there, but nothing that they could tell that anybody had been there other than the witnesses. Uh, what can you say about that? I spoke with uh, the driver. I spoke with three of the five people in that vehicle. And Tony, the guy who was driving the car, stated that he was a little leery because as he was driving up the driveway, he almost got stuck because the gravel was so soft. And he noted that there had been nobody else driving on that driveway as they drove up because the, uh, the tire tracks would have been uh, pretty obvious. So since the driveway had been harrowed, they were the first vehicle to traverse the driveway in or out okay. since they had been, been plowed up. And nothing uh, that could tell that anybody had been on that property, at least. Nothing obvious. Nothing obvious, at least. Anybody had been on the property after this driveway had been plowed. Right. Okay. I guess what it also mean is even if we we're talking about Bernard and Peggy leaving, there wasn't any tire tracks for anything they could have been driving either. Exactly. See, seemingly. seemingly. Okay. Let's move on to this. We've kind of talked about this already. You've already stated that one of the things that the firefighters, when they went in there, uh, they found it odd that, you know, they found the coins and, you know, very hard metallic objects that don't melt under normal house fire. But their opinion was that other things that they would expect to find in this type of fire were not found. But is there anything that has been proven to have been not there that should have been anything, for example, that was stolen? Anything that was missing once somebody who would be in a position to know, maybe Peggy's brother or somebody went in there, you know, and noticed anything was missing, for example, in the shed, in this gun repair shed, where these dogs were found in the cars, even stuff like that, any possessions missing, anything like that? Well, he did find there were several guns in the house and they did find remains of those guns because there was issues going on with the insurance where yeah. they could identify what guns were left in the house. I would okay. think there was guns in the outbuilding as well as repair shop. Um, there was uh, Bernard's son, his eldest son had stuff stored out there. Uh, nothing that, um, that was, uh, stated taken at that time i know later later on as the uh house stood empty there was reports of people breaking into the barn and stuff like that uh, yeah. to take things but no there was nothing noted offhand that was actually taken away from the farm that night okay and once again you stated though that in the firefighter's opinion even though it doesn't it doesn't sound to me like they knew peggy and Bernard that well, in their opinion, having showed up at other fires, house fires, surely over the years, their opinion was that they thought that they would find things in the fire that they didn't. Basic, essentially, yes, there'd be a little more signs of uh, of habitation, you know, okay. clothes, 
suitcase, things like that that you might find that wouldn't completely burn. <clears throat> you can tell, I mean, there'd be varying degrees of the fire, the heat of the fire. Mm -hmm. um, I did talk, one of the firefighters speculated that they couldn't find any, any limbs left from Brian. And I did talk to the uh, uh, state fire investigator about that. And he said, that's not totally unusual with the heat of fire nowadays with some of the um, plastics and things like that, that it could become hot, hot enough to incinerate the legs and stuff like that, some of the fatty tissue things. Um, so we've got heat enough in one area of the house that obviously destroyed a large portion of Brian's remains. Then in another portion of the house, we have heat that wasn't strong enough that it actually left the full skeleton of a, a small dog. Okay. So there's varying, varying, you can tell there's varying temperatures in the in the area of the house. And another, another thing with Brian being that the the remains were found in that that root cellar. Uh, you're looking at a cement walled area of the house, kind of like an old cistern type area, where that could have actually uh, turned more into an oven type thing as the fire burned down too. So that might explain higher temperatures over there. Yeah, and I guess uh, continue on this fire idea. It just doesn't sound to me like this fire burned very long. Um, it let they left it burn long enough to burn the house to ash. Or because they knew at that time there was remains in the house because of the smell. So that's when they turned out and the fire fire marshal suggested rather than putting it out, <clears throat> it's going to be a lot easier and less hazardous to search when you leave the house burned to basically an ash. Like I said, one of the upper wall, one part of a wall was left standing. And he said it's going to be much easier than having to remove debris out of the house. And that's his explanation. The firefighters was is that when you go through the process of sorting the ashes and sifting, you're going to be able to tell whereabouts things were located as the level of the house by where it falls into the ashes. So that's that was the explanation given to me. Okay. Now here's a disputed story. Uh, you know, uh, I don't, I don't know what to make of it, but there was a skull found in the fire that was not Brian's. Uh, but it's a disputed story. Uh, you've gotten two different versions of this. Why don't you give both versions to the audience? There was, yeah, there was a skull found in the house. Um, this was actually, I think, while the fire was still going, they spotted this. Um, a aunt of Peggy's stated in a letter um, to some of the uh, detectives or investigators. She didn't live in the area at all, um, but she said that Peggy's mother had given her a skull that was used as a planter. Um, that was a story that came from there. And you know what? Quite honestly, I never paid a lot of attention to it. You'd think a skull on a fire, you'd, mm. especially me. Um, but I never paid a lot of attention to it. And later on, uh, due to it for another reason i ended up talking to Peg peggy's sister uh in seattle was in the area at the time of the fire and she she told me and brought it up to me that she wanted to note that uh her mother 
never and would never give a person a skull, a human skull as a gift. Right. She said it. her mother was uh, would faint the sight of a pulled tooth. And she thought that was the most ridiculous thing ever said. And she stated that her aunt was being a busybody and wanted to inject herself into the story. So it was funny because she brought that up to me. I never mentioned the skull at all in our conversation. Mm-hmm. So, so is, I, I got to ask, so are we saying this is a real human skull or is this just something that's made like of, I don't know, uh, cement or porcelain? I don't know. I don't know what even they make this stuff off of. Uh, pot and metal or or what? What are we saying here being regarding the skull? It's a real human. It was a real one way or the other. It was in the remains. It was it a real human skull, like of some dead person, or was it just a fake? It was a it was a real human skull. Um, forensically wise, when they were trying to remove it, a lot of the skull fell apart uh, because of the heat and the fire. Mm-hmm. But there were remnants of the skull. There it was a human skull, but. You have to realize, too, back in the days where uh, people would find uh, Native American burial grounds or things like that, or things would, when they're out working fields, they might inadvertently have tilled something up, and they took souvenirs. I mean, there's a lot of of, Of uh, farmers and stuff that actually collected uh, Native American relics and kept them in their house, bring them out and things like that. So, I mean, it's not totally out of the question. It's still wondering how it happened to be out there. So it's still kind of a mystery as to why, but it's not, I would say it's not totally out of the question. But Um, I guess what I'm saying, conceivably, this could have been Bernard's or Peggy's skull, conceivably. Yeah, I think, well, I think they eliminated that because of there was nothing else found in that area the only thing that was there there was no vertebrae there was no no other bones found there and uh the uh coroner when they went through the remains and stuff like that he stated i'm not sure his whole process but he stated on uh unquestionably that there was only one set of human remains in that house okay that's a crazy story though here we have a young uh, bo- a boy who died. His remains are found, and an additional skull is found. But we do not believe it is the skull of anybody else who lived in the house. That's the- it. Doesn't get any more unique than that, as you know, Joe. With the work you've done, you surely you know it's just uh, weird. All right, let's move on to this, and I have to bring this up because we, of course, have covered at least one disappearance, Andrea Bowman, where. She was murdered by her father, Dennis, because of allegations that he had made against, I think that's the reason, but she, we now know that he really did murder her and buried her in the backyard. So we have to be at least open to the idea that maybe Peggy and Bernard did something to their son for whatever reason. Anything that you have ever read and working on this for four years about anything that Brian ever said is about his parents that had anything to do with abuse, did he ever say anything to anybody at, at school? Anything like that? No, everything I've heard about Brian, that he was a very quiet kid that kept to himself. Um, Not to make anything out, but I'm almost maybe to the verge of uh, autistic spectrum, maybe. I can't say that for sure. I'm just saying from some of the things I heard, how quiet he was, uh, they, they never went into it that much. I did talk to somebody that 
uh, interacted with the family on occasions with the Brian and the mom. <clears throat> um, there was really, like I said, I've been trying to find out where Brian exactly went to school just to see if I could explore things about Brian a little bit more. Uh, nobody ever bought, brought up anything about any kind of abuse in any of the relationships uh, between mom and dad or dad and child or anything like that. Um, they just, the only thing to that extent, they thought that Bernard and Brian felt a little distant from each other in the interactions that some of the people witnessed. Okay. So nothing ever brought up. All right. So I guess what we're saying is, at least publicly, anything that anybody's been able to find, there doesn't seem to be appear to be any reason that, for example, Peggy and Bernard would have wanted to kill their son and like get away and, and cover it all up by burning their house down. There's no there's no allegations to think that they would have done that. Any accusations that. against them? No, well, we know it's not impossible. It's been done in the past, but there was it certainly there. has. But we don't have any information, unlike once again with Andrea Bowman's, where it was very public that she had made accusations against her father, Dennis, before she went missing. And we now know that she was murdered. OK, let's move on to this. Now, let's talk a little bit more. We'll get back to Bernard and Peggy and the two of them. Let's revisit this fixed contract bid. And we've already talked about it. Uh, and your belief is that, yes, this fixing did work, but how did this story, this seems to me, my perception is this is something that you really want to keep on the down low, behind the scenes. Nobody should know, ever know about this, that it happened. Why is this even known? How did you even get paperwork to verify that this actually happened? Because it seems to me that Peggy would want to keep that a secret. The person who was giving this bribe, which is essentially what it is, would want to keep it secret. How did this even come out? I don't think it was probably viewed as uh, that big of a deal, maybe by them. I think it was told to friends. Um, the only thing I have in there it was brought up a couple times about friends mentioning it and the uh, detectives asking it, uh, people about it in another interview. And it seemed to be known amongst peers uh, outside of work. Um, like I said, Bernard. It was mentioned by Bernard to a friend, and Bernard said he didn't play that way. But then in another statement, uh, it gave specifics of uh, uh, where the company was from, the amount of money that exchanged hands. And uh, huh. the, the detectives asked about it, so I'm not sure. <clears throat> There's some vague things in there where they actually initially heard it to start asking the questions about it. I guess what we're saying, I guess what you're saying then is, Joey, is it doesn't seem that Peggy and Bernard were very, doing a very good job of keeping this a secret. They were just freely talking about it. Well, I think to close friends, and I don't think yeah. it was something they felt was maybe that big of a deal at the time. Okay. It might, depends on, on your perspective in the story about <clears throat> the guy who was the initial highest bidder probably would have taken a little bit differently than than uh yeah people, uh this just uh, it does sound like uh some crime is being committed there it does i think uh, it's probably yeah. not is uh they probably didn't take it as that big of a deal maybe because of the circumstances with it you know that they obviously okay. talked to friends about it and all right. So. Okay. So, um, all right. So it doesn't seem like this is a secret. They were talking about it. 
but it just doesn't seem like people thought it was that big of a deal. I have to admit. I don't think they told uh, everyone. I think there was some close friends that might have, the story might have got exchanged with. So I don't think they're real open about it because I'm sure there'd be plenty of people uh, that if it was known publicly that it would have came back to. Okay. So people will have to think about that. To, to what degree do they think that this is a, a serious crime or not? Moving on. Uh, we've already kind of touched upon this, but we'll try to go a little deeper with it. Uh, was Bernard cheating on Peggy? And how is this even known? Uh, where did this story start? And who was uh, who was the woman? Uh, there was a woman that was questioned okay. uh, after the fact, uh, a married woman that stated that she had had a relationship with Bernard uh, in the early 70s uh, before he went to the cities, uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and because it was just noted in there that she wasn't even aware he was back in town. Hmm. Uh, they had talked to her about and how they actually found out that they had a relationship to begin with. I, I have no idea. But that was the one thing mentioned in one of the interviews about uh, uh, him having a relationship with that woman for a time in the earlier seventies, which would have been part of the time that he was with Peggy. Okay. No allegations though, that this was continuing in 1976. No, the woman stated that she hadn't seen him in four years or so. And had no idea he was living in the area again. And I, I think, although I have to say, I think people are going to probably read between the lines on this and hearing how many kids that Bernard had and how many different women. And, uh, you know, maybe they're going to think maybe there was some other woman anyway that we just don't know about. You know, maybe there was another woman in 75, 76. No proof of that. But given his reputation and, you know, maybe even Peggy being that she had been cheating on her husband with Bernard, I maybe maybe that was going both ways. Okay. Now, you've also given me some paperwork, regard, shown me some paperwork uh, that you've collected regarding, of course, Bernard worked at this car dealership in the body shop area, and there was an allegation or actual proof that a car, uh, to go back to the 1970s vehicles, a Chevrolet Vega, which in retrospect would probably be the worst choice of a car to ever steal. But was there a car stolen from where Bernard worked, and uh, where did this story originate? You know, what can you say about it? Oh, that was found in a different part of the document, but initiated with me is that there was a sighting. Bernard had a glass eye, which was kind of noticeable when you when you looked at him. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a sighting in Moorhead, Minnesota, where a woman stated that she saw someone that looked to be Bernard Rusness uh, because of the wire rim glasses and distinguishing eye. And the reason she even looked is that her kids were staring at the guy because he had kind of a odd eye. And she reported that at the time he was driving a, a Vega station wagon with wood, wood grain siding on it. And it was curious because Peggy's sister had lived in Moorhead, probably about 10 blocks from where the sighting had taken place. That's why I reached out to her originally mm -hmm. to find out that if she had actually um seeing bernard if bernard and peggy were stopping at her house then being maybe they were alive um but i found out later in some side notes 
that with this uh, uh, sighting in Avega, that a couple weeks prior to the disappearance, a 1972 Vega went missing from the car dealership that Bernard worked at. Huh. There's no real disposition or report on it, but it was just taken in the notes that this was uh, a couple weeks prior to that. Okay. So, so it was not a, a year, so it was not a, a new 1976 Vega if they even made them that year. It was a used one from 1972. Yeah, it was a 72. Yeah. Okay. So maybe this, we know uh, how it's unfound how we feel about eyewitness accounts. So I don't know what to make of this woman, but uh, maybe just more importantly, that there was a vehicle that was stolen from where Bernard worked not too long before this all happened. Exactly. That's right. just, and it is what it is. There's just some okay. things that we. Okay. Now, the listeners should know that Joe and I uh, have gone through a, a lot of stories. And, you know, me as the host, it, it's always uh, my job to keep things as, as concise as possible. I think Joe and I could sit here and talk about uh, people being suspicious of planes, hearing planes overhead at the time and all sorts of things. And we're just going to have to avoid those uh, for the time being. So I, I just want to narrow it down uh, to this point. And Joe, uh, has his own lot line. He knows this question is coming. What, once again, his opinion, because we are going to talk about some suspects here, uh, very quickly. In your opinion, is there any allegation against either one, either Peggy or Bernard or both that rises to the level that someone would torture house, kill their son and take Bernard and Peggy away? Any allegations so serious against them, anything that they could have been involved in, that rises to the level that a person or group would have wanted to do this? And if so, what allegation would that be? I've never heard anything uh, beyond maybe some, uh, I'm speculating that it would be maybe some petty things involved with the, you know, car insurance and auto body type things. Yeah. And, you know, there's nothing that I could even think of. I mean, honestly, besides for maybe a Mexican drug cartel, I mean, who's going to do something like that? Who would have the case? I mean, really, when you look at that, who would be angry enough to uh, and resourceful enough to to leave a kid to die in the house but take the parents away? Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the ultimately, all the things we've talked about, all these scenarios and stuff like that, you still can't make any sense of actually what happened, you know, but why do it right. this way? So, so uh, no, once again, we're saying, and, 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 and keep in mind, I mean, just within the last, what was it, five years, we did have this story out of Ohio where a bunch of people in one family were killed. I think there were nine different people killed between children and adults, and they suspected it was a Mexican cartel because they were involved in growing marijuana illegally in there. But eventually found out that it was another family that did it because they were all ticked off because something had happened between the daughter and a son in that other family, uh, and it ended up being a family, you know, family thing. But that was figured out fairly quickly. I mean, to kill nine people in a family, three different locations, or what it was, this came out very quickly. But here we are, forty-six years later, and uh, it, you know, you being an expert on this disappearance, still trying to figure out if some of this did, if this was what happened, that somebody did go in there and take them and kill their son. There's just nothing that that makes sense that any allegation would cause somebody to do that. 
Yeah, I mean, if you had any scenario, if you had something against Bernard and you wanted to get rid of him, uh, taking them away from the house and letting the, the boy die in the fire just draws more attention to itself. Yeah. There, there's so many right. things that wouldn't. Okay. Uh, so I guess what we're saying is maybe it's still possible now, but I think uh, after 46 years, nobody has come across what that might have been. And of course, we might even just be open to the idea that Bernard and Peggy did this all on their own <coughs> for some reason, which we may get into uh, before we're done here as well. Okay, next question. Anything you're, once again, you talking to the, some of the family members, you doing your own work, anything that changed in Peggy and Bernard's life right before that disappearance? For example, financial trouble, impending criminal charges, foreclosures, uh, were they going to get caught, you know, doing something that was much worse than fixing a bid? Anything that has ever popped up that anybody's told you? Nothing that's ever uh, came up. There was no, they had owned some land, uh, but they were going to build a cabin on or some land along the lake that they're almost paid off on. Mm -hmm. um, uh, they didn't have, they looked at their credit card statements and stuff. Nothing really uh, outstanding amount of money owed anywhere. They had money in their bank account that would have been maybe ample to to survive the the way they you know their standard of living. Uh, nothing that ever came came up as far as that. I mean, we we speculated there was a couple routes that I've gone down or veering away from. Uh, uh, possible motives um one of them might maybe be some kind of fraudulent activity a little bit beyond that mm -hmm. but there was nothing that uh that's outstanding you know that would that would pop out that either the prior investigators or i've, I've ever found that would make it uh, kind of a no-brainer and I think we have to remember something else. We, you know, we're so caught up in talking about human remains and everything else. Being that you brought up that Bernard had a glass eye, um, if you know, depending on high quality, what kind of high quality the glass eye would have been, it wouldn't burn in a fire either. And that would be something once you're sifting through things that you think you would run across, right? Yeah, it, yeah. I never thought of it that way, but yeah, that would be something you, you'd come across and big enough think yeah so if we're even if we're open to the idea that something happened and and uh, peggy and bernard got caught in the basement trying to put out a fire they died and somehow their remains got charred and it turned to ash this glass eye that he had i think there's a decent possibility maybe that it would have survived the fire once again because it's glass and how is glass made glass is made with fire and you'd think it would survive it especially afterwards when they're going through and sifting through anything so maybe that's something for everybody to think about as well okay now let's talk about um some you know some suspects because once again I think we have to do this because to, to think about the alternative maybe might just be a little too much for us to stand. But we're not saying we believe these things, but just to talk about some names that have come up over the years. Uh, for some reason, uh, a sheriff's deputy has been a popular uh, boogeyman in all of this. How did this even come up? How, what would you say about this? Oh, it was a deputy that lived... Uh 
not too far away from the fire where the fire happened. Um, he responded to the fire afterwards. There's some various varying stories about um, how long he was there and what he did out there. But I think we get down to the point where it's, it's uh, there was rumors that uh, this deputy might have had something to do with it, maybe some infidelity, things like that. He held a grudge over something. Um, mm -hmm. There's nothing really to substantiate any of it. And at a later time, he did pass a polygraph. Uh, but time, excuse me, at the time he took it, he had no idea that there was even rumors about him going around. Huh. I've talked, to some people that, I've talked to people that would swear he had something to do with it. I also yeah. talked to I people know, yeah. that are some of his uh, biggest advocates. I think most of it seems to be more barroom speculation type thing. I have the feeling he's one of those guys that either you liked him or you hated him. One of those, you know, one of those personalities. Because I've definitely seen both. Okay. But there's nothing, nothing to substantiate that he had any kind of involvement with it. There was a polygraph. Uh, the cold case investigators interviewed him about that very topic, also stating that he had no clue that people had actually suspected him of doing anything. Okay. Um, now you, uh, though, much more recently have had a chance to ask actually police in the area about this and what have they said? Um, they were quite confident that he had, they, they warned me about the people bringing that up to me mm -hmm. and they were, they said that there's absolutely, absolutely nothing to substantiate it. And it was basically because Clarence, the deputy was from that town and everybody in that area knew him. And had their opinions of him um but everybody even walking into it the, the county investigators and the uh cold case investigator from the dca told me that they don't believe that he had absolutely anything to do with it and there's nothing to substantiate that he did okay so let's just move on to this um everyone knows how i feel about uh, you know prisoner confessions and saying they know things about disappearances but there are some people who went through enough bother to even write letters. Let's talk about those letters. I've seen them, and maybe by the time everybody sees us or hears our voices, uh, they will have been posted so people can read them for themselves. Uh, I've called them the cult letter and the pastor letter. Let's talk about the cult letter first. Uh, please summarize it. When was it written? Who wrote it? What can you say about that letter, Joe? There was a letter written... Uh, by an inmate addressed to the Wolf Lake police chief um, by a guy simply known as Terry M, who was an inmate in North Dakota State Penitentiary in Bismarck. The letter stated something to the extent that he knew a Reverend Bob Warner, who was an exorcist. Mind you, this letter, it, well, I, I think uh, you can probably describe him as, as simple. Okay. Uh, author of the letter. Um, uh, he was in prison with a guy named uh, Reverend Bob Warner, who was an exorcist. He stated there was devil worshipers after, after this Bob Warner, they wanted to kill him, and that they knew about what happened to the boy in Wolf Lake. 
This mm. letter was written in 78, the fall of 78, I believe. Okay. And he went on to say that these uh, uh, devil worshipers went and uh, he said they were also killed and decapitated the pregnant lady from McCluskey in October of 1976 um, and buried her in different places and then surmised it by saying uh, they're very dangerous. They've killed seven people already and kind of left it at that. Uh, curious thing, I did look into a little bit of that. Um, I did talk to the undersheriff in, in uh, Sheridan County where McCluskey is, and he did some digging and stuff, and he's not aware of any woman that disappeared in, in McCluskey in October of 1976. Well, there was a response to this letter. The only thing I have is uh, about the agents talking to this Bob Warner. Um, is a piece of legal paper with some hand-jotted notes here and there with some times written down. It appeared that when they talked to Warner, he gave the name of uh, two other inmates. And it shows that they talked to those inmates for a very short period of time. I ended up looking to those inmates. They were both involved uh, in the armed robbery of a Fargo pharmacy, hospital pharmacy, and they were prison for that at the time. I did actually talk to one of them, one's deceased, and I located another one in Minneapolis and talked to him for a little bit. Um, he vaguely remembered Bob Warner, um, didn't really recall being talked to about this case at all. Okay. Um, then after that, we have a letter from Bob Warner, Reverend Bob Warner, um, apologizing to the agents that um, feeling bad because how could he prove his own innocence if he let um, the guilty go in this case of the boy from Wolf Lake? And he stated in that letter that he knew um, someone intimate, one of his very few friends was involved and had something to do with the boy that died in Wolf Lake in April of 76. And then he went on to state that he also knew uh, who exchanged money on a murder contract for a, a woman named Holly Guy. Mm. So I had ended up, I found a lot of stuff on this water. Uh, he's okay. still alive. He lives under an alias someplace else. Um, he was a con man. Uh, I talked to an ex-wife of his who, uh, speaking of ex-wife, another one that fears uh, their ex-husband extremely. Okay. And he said he was uh, very abusive and I was kind of a uh, shyster. The, the, the whole reverend thing came along as he was in a thrift shop and found a priest collar <laughs> and he started wearing that. And then he started calling oh, himself. My. Oh my goodness. And I'm sure the story went along with this Carrie M, you know, well, I'm a reverend and stuff like that. Yeah, and Carrie M yes. simple enough to, to believe him. Right. Right. Uh, this Holly guy, this was a murder that was unsolved. And is it, is it still unsolved in 2022? No, it was, a, it was a living person in a contract that was put out. Now, I often believe that there is a, even in like a pathological liar, there's always usually an element of truth in every lie. So I started to do some vetting and I found this woman 
Um, she was the daughter of the former or the governor of North Dakota back then. Right. When I found her living in Minnesota here, <clears throat> I called her up and uh, basically asked her, are you aware of, uh, it's an awkward conversation. Are you aware of anybody putting a murder contract out on you 40 years ago? Right. <clears throat> She's like, uh, no, but she also told me that she was a confidential informant back then and that she was responsible for putting a lot of people in prison. So in that, we can say that it's very likely that somebody could have tried to put out some kind of contract on her at one time uh, when they're in prison and, and uh, Warner apparently knew about that. Nobody ever went back to talk to Warner um, because they basically, um, they lied to him. He lied to him once and thought he was full of yep. full crap. They don't yep. waste their time anymore. <clears throat> Still not sure how this could be connected to these disappearances though. At least states he knows the guy, mm -hmm. Wolf Lake. What's kind of funny though is Wolf Lake, Minnesota is a relatively small town and have some guy in Bismarck uh, North Dakota, two years after the fact, two guys actually, two or three years right. after the fact, bring it up about knowing who was responsible for the death of the boy in, in Wolf Lake, Minnesota. Um, I explored a few of those options. The guy I wanted to, I'd love to talk to the water. Um, like I said, he's living under an alias in another city right now, and I haven't been able to. Uh, track him down or the couple times I might have came close, they uh, kind of shut me down. I, I did find his son and talk to his son, uh, verified it was his son through one of the detectives out there. And he stated that he, he uh, has no clue who the man is, has no clue who his mother is, even though they go under a very unique name right now. And uh, I just kind of left it. It's like, well, I'll tell you what, if you should ever know them, you know, keep my number, keep my name. You can find me on Facebook, whatever, reach back out to me. So up to this point, though, I think I might have talked to his ex-wife who denied that she was herself. Um, <laughs> when the phone was answered, I said, yeah, I'm looking for Dorothy. And it's like, oh, she doesn't live here. No, bye. And it's like hung up the phone. So, All right. All right. All right. So we have these... We have these two letters, got allegations, people saying they know things, but of course we know all of this is still unsolved 46 years later. Okay, but we had to talk about it because uh, you do have the paperwork on that and you can post those in the group. I'll post them on the website. Uh, people will make the decisions for themselves. Now, now yeah, it's certainly interesting. I don't know how uh, conclusive it is, but it's certainly interesting. Uh, let's move on to this. Sightings. Uh, there are these people who say that they uh, encountered uh, Bernard and Peggy seemingly after this all happened. Let's talk about that now. Well, there was a, there was a couple of them. One where he thought he was in a, somebody, uh, a mail caller thought they saw him in a bathroom at a truck stop in Painesville, which isn't that far away. Um, then we have the one in Moorhead with the, uh, in the Vega. And then another couple stated that during a Memorial Day weekend, uh, they were at a lake. Bernard and Peggy stopped there 
Um, the women fished. The guys had some drinks some beer, talked. Um, the guy stated that Bernard told him that he was doing carpentry work. And um, the guys got a little jagged up and the women got, ended up talking. They ended up taking off and leaving. Um, but the guy, the guy at the lake identified them as Bernard and Peggy. Now, the question that in the paperwork that's there, it can't be answered where whether or not um, this gentleman from Osage, Minnesota, which is a little ways away, but not uh, still relatively close, knew Bernard and Peggy prior to this meeting or right. after the fact that he um, said, hey, those are the people I talked to at the lake. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing I can't get. I've got a telephone number for the guy, but he doesn't seem to answer his phone ever. I have talked to people that know him. Uh, one of the firefighters I talked to knew him, and uh, he speculated he's kind of an old farmer, recluse, and he would have a hard time uh, for thinking that this guy would have known somebody from Wolf Lake with any kind of uh, intimacy at all because he, he was one of those people that just basically stayed in town on the farm in the county type thing that he wouldn't have been out that far. So that's another curious thing. It'd be nice to know conclusively if he knew them. Yeah. But this was allegedly, this was though, after this all happened. Yep. Um, and where was, and just explain where was this again? It was around Osage, Minnesota, which would probably be <clears throat> 35 miles away from the Wolf Lake area, I believe, if my memory. Okay. Uh, one of the okay. firefighters that I talked with too lives in Osage now. Okay. Now there was also allegedly another sighting, I think just of Peggy on TV. Yes, yeah, there was. Uh, someone in Detroit Lakes was watching an episode of the Today Show and believed that they saw Peggy um, as an injured person in the earthquake footage, uh, it was Coligno or something like that. I'm trying to remember that I didn't put it down in my notes here. Mm -hmm. um, there's footage of the earthquake uh, results like, like on YouTube you can find, but I haven't found like NBC Today Show footage. Okay. Um, the deputies from Becker County did reach out to uh, detectives in that county. There's notes about them making the phone calls and stuff like that. There was nothing conclusively noted about a yay or a nay, or if they located somebody who this person was in the video. Um, so there's nothing really conclusive on what they got back. I would assume if they thought of it, they would have, would have uh, pursued it more. Um, I did go after, I did try to contact NBC archives to see if there would be footage from the day today show around the time of the day today show that earthquake and apparently right after i made right before i made that request they quit fulfilling uh requests from the public and just did it for news agencies so i wasn't able to find any hmm. <clears throat> any of that footage to see if i could pick anything out in itself okay and we know how remote a possibility what are the odds of something like that actually being true but and and we also know a lot of people look like each other across the world a lot of people on this planet so we have to keep that all in mind but obviously it was noteworthy enough that somebody brought it up okay 
Let's move on to this. Now, what have you been able to, to deduce from both Peggy and Bernard's families as to their reaction to all of this? For example, his ex-wives, her ex-husband, uh, you know, Bernard's children, maybe the one that he knew the best, maybe the one that he worked, the, the son that he worked with. What were their reactions to this? Did they do anything to try to figure out what happened to these two? What can you say about all that? Uh, well, um, with the middle mother of uh, some of the children, there was no real interview with her. I know they talked to her um, and they gave a polygraph to her, um, Bernard's wife, wife in Fargo and a couple other people. And they all passed basically. Um, I know when they, Detectives went to talk to Bernard's wife, Margaret, in Fargo. <clears throat> she uh, basically said, you know, he'd stop by here and there for um, birthdays a little bit and drop off a card and visit here and there. Um, but she wasn't, she thought that Bernard had maybe divorced her and she didn't know about it. So she was unsure if they were actually still married or not. Mm -hmm. um, but I came across in other interviews, like in the newspaper later on, that she uh, didn't really want to get at least vent any ill feelings or anything towards it. Um, the only thing that it shows that she was, uh, there was a property that they had owned on a lake. There's no real insurance money that I could tell that was coming from Bernard. Um, there was a property that was owned, a uh, lakeshore property they owned that they're planning on building on. There's only a few payments left. Um, she was looking at maybe getting that property back and because I believe there were some mispayments after that that was putting it close to foreclosure. So she retained an attorney to, to uh, retain that property. Um, the only one that I could tell that Bernard was really close to was his eldest son, Ben, his namesake. They had worked together at the car dealership in, uh, in Fargo. Ben was a little in seemed a little indifferent there's a lot of correspondence and uh interviews with him with the with the investigators although he had a lot of theories about maybe this happened maybe that happened um nothing that really had any kind of solid ground to it he had mentioned once that his dad wanted to uh grow marijuana on the farm eventually hmm. um he thought that maybe somebody had to uh, kill them and brought them over to the chicken farm across the road and put them into the grinders. Um, he thought maybe there was organized crime involved because of the car dealership stuff. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of speculation out there. Yeah. Um, that was from a, the closest family member out there. <clears throat> Peggy's there's really no comment on. Um, the only thing I feel, I'll bring it up here too, is that um, Brian, the eight-year-old that died, um, his remains were held until like 1981, I believe, in the county by the county coroner. And this brings into a thing here: Brian had no family there to claim his body. Because when you look at it, you have Bernard, who had several kids with a couple different women, his wife. Who's alienated himself from that area? Peggy uh, divorced her husband, two kids there, 
<coughs> no real family. So when you leave Brian with no extended family involved with this, there was really nobody left to claim him. His parents were both gone, and there was right. nobody else. <coughs> His parents really for him, so it was kind of a, a lost boy. So that's really kind of somber and sobering, and yeah. basically married by the county in the in the eighties. Mm. So, um, as far as family goes, that's one of the things that I always think about. But yeah, there was nothing real. Nobody seemed real surprised, but again, it's just the mystery of, of any kind of a motive for it. lots of speculation. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me, but yeah, it's kind of. Uh, but yeah, there's nothing really brought up directly. Uh, and most of the things the sun brought up were just kind of random speculation. So, okay. Uh, uh, have uh, Peggy and Bernard ever been declared deceased? Uh, Bernard was declared deceased. I don't believe, from what I found, Peggy ever was. Okay. Um, I had heard recently something that if you have somebody declared dead, all investigations have to stop, which I think think that's crap. I don't, I don't believe that at all, but that would be the only reason I could see why Peggy was never uh, declared deceased. And then again, I think with Bernard, it had a lot to do with social security money. uh, Sure. I don't think Peggy had much of an estate per se, where Bernard had property, different things like that, maybe pension. Uh, maybe uh, social security money. So it was probably more imperative that they have him declared deceased to settle up all those things. Right. Okay. Let's move on to a little bit. Of course, we have done maybe a little more theorizing than I usually do uh, in interviews simply because, of course, Joe is not a family member and uh, he should get an an opportunity to offer his own insights. He's the one with the facts and can look at them in an objective manner. So uh, as the listeners uh, and viewers know, we've done a little more speculating than we usually do. But uh, being that you uh, got into this some years ago, wanting to look at um, crime and disappearances in Minnesota, are there any other crimes or disappearances like this in Minnesota, to your knowledge, Joe? Nothing that I've found that, at least in recent history, that fits this kind of scenario. I mean, you all, you get, you know, you're missing 411 stuff, missing hunters, missing things like mm-hmm. that. This has been really unique as far as what actually went down. So, I mean, we've debated on the phone. I mean, well, maybe this, maybe that. Yeah. But when you go exactly what happened, uh, you can't find, it's difficult to find any reason why uh, the boy would have died, the house would have burned, and they would have been separated. If mm-hmm. somebody had something Bernard, leave them all die in a house fire. Nobody thinks that's right. That's right. If you want them all dead, just leave them in the fire. Yeah. Trying to find a scenario. I mean, we've ran things back and forth, but you go back, well, but then why do this? And that's one of the most complex things and one of the most aggravating things, frustrating things about the whole thing is trying to find any kind of reason um, uh, outside of the family uh that would justify this kind of scenario you know and that's uh i think too when your listeners do start to speculate they will that would be something too to look back but why 
did it happen this way? Why did the right. boy get left behind? Why are those two gone? And that's that. That's the thing that throws a wrench in a lot of these. A lot of, of course it does. Of course it does. I agree with you. So, uh, as I've already stated, and the listeners maybe can do this off the top of their heads, that um, we've had some disappearances where burnings have occurred. Dorian Myers, Laura Bible, and Ashley Freeman, Jeremy Burt, uh, just to name a few. Maybe um, there might be one or two more in there. But so this is not a new topic. It's certainly. Um, you know, maybe this is most like Laura Bible and Ashley Freeman's where there was a burning and somebody, two people were found and they had been shot. No proof that that happened to Brian, but remains were found in that. And we do know that Laura Bible and Ashley Freeman were taken and for the purposes of being raped and then murdered and disposed somewhere, but they've still not been found over 20 years later. So maybe there's some similarities to that. You could see similarities to Dorian Myers, given that parts of her house were burned and it is not believed that she did that uh who knows who did it i have my own beliefs but then her car was burned like 80 found burned 80 miles away but regarding the locals of that area uh, does the do these disappearances have any kind of local lore you've talked about how locals maybe have pointed the finger at this deputy but is this still even a topic of conversation uh, the local little uh, places that the locals hang out. Does this even come up? Do you think these days? Um, there's uh, the sheriff, the Becker County Sheriff's Office did a Facebook posting not too long ago, um, just as a look back type thing and saying that it's still open through that is where I found a lot of these firefighters. There's only one firefighter that was interviewed in the, the cold case investigation. I don't think anything prior to that. So I found a couple of these firefighters through that post uh, going through there. Two things that goes, there's some strong feelings. Uh, I met, I was introduced to one of the firefighters through his daughter, and she stated that because of the um, circumstances with that fire, it's something that they'll still talk about here and there um, uh, for the fact that the boy died and that there was um, you know, rumors around town. Um, I don't think there's a lot of current speculation. Like if you weren't around then, I don't think that it really, that it really, uh, comes into conversation. Uh, like I said, the firefighters were on scene and like the things that stick with you, like the smell of, of a burning body. Those are things you don't forget. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it exists yet in that, in that fashion. But the family still looks and goes online. You see on some of the websites and stuff, there's some comments from uh, various people that were related to Bernard in some way or another. But as far as anything else goes, I don't think it's really been um, remembered in the area okay. or talked about. Anything that you've ever heard that shows that maybe Bernard and Pe Peggy made plans to leave? Uh, wrapping up any sort of loose strings regarding finances, uh, getting plane tickets, any anything on their bank records, anything like that that they were planning ever, not just that evening that day, but any time in the future, anything. The bills, you know, the bills seem to be paid. They did have some money in the bank, not a lot, but enough that they wouldn't be in, uh, you know, 
a little better than living paycheck to paycheck, I guess. I don't think they had a lot of extra money, but they had enough money to do with what they, uh, you know, they needed to do. Um, nothing ever showed that there was any preparation amongst, um, from coworkers or anybody that knew them, um, that anything in their behavior had changed at all. Hmm. And, you know, including that they, you know, that they were, planning on something um if they did it, it which isn't out of the question because i told you it's either either they ran or somebody took them yeah it's one way or the other and maybe there was uh i mean it's all uh conjecture but you know you could look at if a car thing came out or you know a car taken there if it was something that they had planned out it had to have been in, in the making for a long time so it wasn't just the crap we got to leave type thing. It had to be had to be put in the works for quite some time before that. Maybe not years, but definitely a month or two. Um, and then as far as finding anybody else with a motive to abduct the parents would be, I mean, it's, you could run a thousand different directions with that one. All right. Right. You know, even as I have in, in my notes here, getting toward the end of this interview, if someone caused this disappearance, why would, what would be the reason for taking Peggy and Bernard, but leaving the son? It is hard to understand. If you really want to kill all of them, then the easiest way to do is just leave them in the, 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 the house. And because even to this day, Brian's part of his remains were found, but we really don't technically know why he died. It very well could have been smoke inhalation. It very well could have been that, you know, he was strangled. We'll never know. Why couldn't they have done that to to the adults as well? You just don't know. Um, you know, why would someone cause somebody, you know, as you've heard me talk about many times, that, um, you know, why would somebody go about causing something this complex? If you really wanted to make Bernard and Peggy you know, disappear, why go through through all of this? Would there not have been more, you know, an easier way to do all of this? What do you think about all of that, Joe? Of course, once again, you've been working on other disappearances. We were on here for talking about uh, Milda's. I know you've covered some other disappearances. What is your insight into all this from your experience? It's, it's still strange, because even if you needed to take Bernard and Peggy or something, trying to get a mother away, because they said... Uh, Peggy was rather a doting mother to Brian. So even if Brian would have died uh, by some mistake or some misadventure type thing, mm -hmm. to have her leave uh, your child like that. Um, so if you're abducting Bernard and Peggy, you have to deal with a mother who you know has got to be grieving and upset and how do you, I mean, just dealing with something like that, as far as abducting someone, um, it would be, I mean, that's that much more of an issue that I'm trying to deal with two adults and even leaving on their own. It's like the reason to leave Brian behind, what was the reason for that? Would it be, right. you know, right. the house down, it looked like the whole family was abducted. You know, there's so much that just doesn't make sense. I mean, we can come up, we've came up with so many scenarios, then you step back and go, yeah, but why? Yeah, but, um, yes, yeah, but, dot, dot, dot. Yes, I mean, 
It's true. We've talked a little bit. I have a couple different avenues that I've pursued as far as potential motivations and motives for it, but none of it brings it back to why this here now. Yeah. And, and, you know, and what I say to that, I, you know, I could certainly, certainly be open to the idea that, you know, could this have something to do with insurance? Could this have something to do that Bernard knew about something going on at his job or anything else? But then it would seem like, well, really, what could he have known? I mean, if that was really the case, there would be people dying like this all the time in Minnesota, but there isn't. So what made, if Bernard knew something or Perry Peggy knew something, you know, why aren't more people like them disappearing or dying? Or But that, you know, so that's, that's always the question mark. One of the interesting things in the case file, and it took me a while to figure it out, there is a uh, multi-page type police flyer in there with uh, your listeners might be familiar with uh, uh, Henry Lucas and Otis Toole, mm-hmm. the serial killers. There was a, a documentary who filled in a lot of things for me about the, conf- the confession killer or something like that on Netflix. But they're in this file. They're included in there, this file about them. And I, for the life of me, I'm going, why is this in here? And after like watching the Netflix thing, I realized that Henry Lee Lucas was confessing to hundreds of murders around the country yeah. at that time. And Otis Toole was in prison at that time for uh, uh, lot, barricading an old man in a house and starting the house on fire. Huh. So I can see once we look in hindsight, when you know what their modus operandi was and, and uh, how they did, I can see where it might've crossed their minds. But although Henry Lucas uh, confessed to hundreds of killings, he still said he never killed anybody in Minnesota. He killed a, a woman in North South Dakota, but not mm-hmm. nothing there. So he wouldn't even confess to that one. But that that was kind of one of those interesting things. For took me a while to figure out why yeah. that was this file. But just an interesting little anecdote there. Yeah. Joe, is there a Facebook page or anything set up for Bernard and Peggy's uh, disappearances? No, I don't believe the family ever has uh, done anything with it i've uh there's a lot of reddit posts and things like that you'll find online uh here and there um i guess my biggest thing with uh with it is is to trying to even with milda's is if nothing else not necessarily trying to solve anything but make sure that the the true and accurate story is put out there yeah uh when you look on those blog posts and stuff there's so much stuff that's not even remotely accurate. Um, I have the entire case file. I've read the entire case file. I've gone through dozens and dozens and dozens of interviews with people. And I can, it's frustrating when you start reading stuff online and you can't go back and correct everybody, you know? Um, But that gets frustrating and things. And it's uh, like we had talked before, especially with uh, older disappearances, when you start dealing with even residences and the families that there there's a story that's been presented over over 40 years this is how it went these are the things that happened and it becomes basically folklore and it's not all necessarily true and accurate but that's just how the story has grown over decades that's a story that keeps getting repeated so that's one of the things too i've been not that i i'd ever be able to necessarily solve anything but the biggest thing is going into it and trying to bring out uh, 
the most accurate picture of events. And if they can, you know, find out any little extra insights would be nice too. So yeah, everybody would love to solve sure. history, solve something. Sure. Maybe something will happen, but I, I'm just right now, I'm more concerned with bringing out the accurate story. Right. So. Joe, any final words before we complete this interview? No, again, Ed, I'd like to thank you uh, for inviting me back on. Hopefully your, mm -hmm. your listeners find it uh, uh, listenable and entertaining and, and, uh, yeah. enough to, and uh, again, too, I appreciate what you do for all these families. Thank you. Uh, it's something that needed to be done and you don't find it anywhere else and that you're giving the, these families a chance to uh, express themselves, tell their stories about them and their family members. You aren't finding that anywhere else. Um, are we, are we going to solve anything? Maybe, maybe not, but maybe. these insights and letting you and letting your listeners and, and viewers know exactly where these families are coming from, that they aren't forgotten. Like we talked about before. And my thing is, is once these stories leave the news cycle, they get buried in the back someplace. Yeah. And unless you're living with this tragedy every day, everyone else goes on with their life. It's true. So it's to have these things remembered uh, with Milda, with the uh, Bernard and Peggy, to bring it back to the forethought so that we can remember them, remember their families a little bit. So I appreciate what you do with that. All right, thanks. And I appreciate you being on this episode of Unfound. Thank you, Ed. You're welcome. And that was my September 12th, 2022 interview with Joe Kistner, amateur sleuth and expert on Bernard and Peggy's disappearances. I thank him for appearing on Unfound for the second time. If you're looking to become an authority on a disappearance, the way Joe goes about his business is a good template to use. I've done a map analysis of this disappearance. I show where the property is and the buildings that still exist on it all these years later. I also show the surrounding area for anyone wondering if Bernard and Peggy could have walked off or been buried nearby. You can find the video on the Unfound podcast channel on YouTube. As I stated in my number three question in the summary section, I think I need to go over what the science exactly is of a human body burning. How long does it take and how hot does the fire need to be for everything, bones, skin, etc. to turn to ash? I've done this before, but it's been a while so a refresher course is probably needed. This will surely help as you mull over what happened to Bernard and Peggy. So, here are the facts. I went to a variety of sources, cremation websites, funeral home websites, and yes, Wikipedia, to put this all together. The generalities are these. At a temperature of 1,400 to 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit, for an average-sized adult, the cremation process takes three to four hours. However, something should be noted. The furnace for cremation is preheated. Yes, just like you'd be cooking something in your kitchen stove. Thus, if a funeral home were to just put a body in there at room temperature and turn the machine on, 
it would take a lot longer to turn the bones and everything to ash. Why? Because the furnace would have to reach 1400 degrees first, which probably takes some time. Only then would the cremation process start, adding probably a couple hours to the process. We must also understand that these are under perfect conditions being done by experts, meaning the process is as efficient as it can be. So that time frame of three to four hours is about as quickly as it can be done. So what are the facts regarding the average house fire? How hot does one get? At firefighterinsider.com, here's what it says. A standard house fire can reach temperatures of up to 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit, 815 Celsius. The key words in that sentence are up to, meaning that is the upper range for the average house fire. Even so, 1,500 degrees is hot enough to cause a body to start to disintegrate. And we have evidence of that in these disappearances and that only partial remains of Brian were found in the fire, with the belief that the rest of him turned to ash. But there's also the issue of time. Yes, the house fire for these disappearances might have gotten to 1,500 degrees, but it would have had to have stayed there for three hours at least. And since these were not perfect conditions with the house not being sealed off, like a crematorium, we would have to believe that the fire would have to burn much longer to start turning bone and skin to ash. However, given that only a portion of Brian's remains were found, we must consider that yes, the fire burned longer than three hours. Maybe much longer, despite the house not being that large. Yet, how could adults Bernard and Peggy be burned to completion when an eight-year-old boy was not? But were both Bernard and Peggy totally burned? What about that skull found in the collapsed house? Yeah, maybe you forgot about that. So, those are the facts of burning bodies. Do with them what you will. Maybe you can clear away some of the smoke that still clouds these disappearances. I'll leave the theorizing up to you. And that's the program. Right now, while you are in your podcast platform, Spotify, YouTube, iTunes, wherever, give Unfound a five-star review, a thumbs up, whatever that platform allows. I thank you for listening. I'm at Denzel, and you've just finished this episode of Unfound.